again, coming back to like the, the kind of school I'd like to send my own students, kids to, keeping in mind my, my level of privilege and what I would expect them to get from home anyway, it would probably be a, like a mix of all three, really. It would have the crew, it would have the expeditionary learning, it would have rigour of classroom instruction, it would have the chanting of poetry <laughs> and it would have self-directed <laughs> it would have self-directed projects. I don't know who's going to start this school. I don't know how the heck you'd make it happen, but I'm just glad there's people in the world that have the level of conviction that Catherine and Andy and Gwyn and Ian have to actually put in the friggin' hard effort to turn these, these speculations of us, of us uh, couch philosophers into reality. Because it's it's just a massive privilege to be able to visit the, all these great institutions and and take hopefully be able to take the best of each to improve schools right across the board. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello once again, my fathomless friends. Welcome to episode 45 of the Rethinking Education podcast, one for every revolution per minute of a seven-inch single. This is going to sound a bit like one of those weird ads that many podcasters do. I assure you I'm not on commission, but I have an amazing app on my phone called Star Tracker. If you don't have it, you need to have a word with yourself. It's free and it is, in my humble opinion, among the very best things that have ever been invented. Anyway... Yesterday evening, I got a notification on my phone to say that the Andromeda galaxy was visible to the naked eye. In case you aren't familiar, the Andromeda galaxy is around 2.5 million light years away and the nearest galaxy to our own. It's also hurtling towards us at a cosmic stroll of 70 miles per second, or perhaps we towards it. And it's predicted that around 5 billion years from now, the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies will smash together, forming one giant elliptical galaxy and transforming the night sky forever. Although by this time, of course, our own sun will have become a red giant, expanding up to a thousand times its current size and engulfing Mercury, Venus, and possibly Earth itself, so it's not yet clear whether there will be any sentient life on Earth, or perhaps Mars, to map out this new astronomy. Anyway, I excitedly grabbed my binoculars and shot outside to marvel at this magnificent smudge of light, 200,000 light years from side to side, all thanks to the photons that have travelled at the speed of light for 2.5 million years to reach my retinas. But it was cloudy. Can't win them all. Well, the night sky may be cloudy, but here on the Rethinking Education podcast, we bring you nothing but crystalline cosmic clarity. Well, that's the aim anyway. One of my favourite education podcasts in the galaxy, nay, the entire multiverse, is the Education Research Reading Room, or the ERRR, hosted by my good friend Ollie Lovell all the way over in Melbourne, Australia. I've been on the ERRR a couple of times, and many guests from the Rethinking Education podcast have also been on the ERRR. People like Naomi Fisher, Ian Cunningham, Guy Claxton, Rachel McFarlane, Harry Fletcher Wood... Peter Gray, Tom Sherrington, to name just, well, all of them, actually. Anyway, 
Recently, Ollie came over to England on a kind of podcast tour. He visited three of our finest educational establishments, the Self-Managed Learning College, or SMLC, in Brighton, where the students literally manage their own learning 100% of the time, XP School in Doncaster, a state secondary free school where they place lots of emphasis on pastoral care, beautiful work and expeditionary learning, and Michaela School in North London, also a free school which is often described as the strictest school in the country. Before we go any further, I'd like to just take a moment to celebrate the fact that three such wildly different educational institutions exist within this country. This, in my view, is a wonderful thing. But really, each of these three educational providers are outliers, and I for one would love to see a far more diverse educational landscape where such variety is on offer to young people and their families in every community. So Ollie visited each of these three amazing places, and he also recorded conversations with the leaders of each of these educational institutions, Ian Cunningham from SMLC, Gwynap Harry and Andy Sprakes from XP, and Catherine Burblesing from Michaela. And if you haven't already done so, it's well worth tuning in to each of these episodes on the ERRR. But also, during his visit, Ollie and I recorded a podcast where we talked about his reflections having visited these three incredibly different educational institutions. And here it is, free of charge, for your listening pleasure. In the last few days, there have been some rather heated conversations on Twitter. I mean, you can always say that, can't you? It's literally the business model. But in recent days, some of these heated conversations have centred around the fact that the English government has just published the GCSE exam results from this year, which revealed, among other things, that Michaela achieved the best exam results in all the land. In these conversations, many people have made the excellent point that exam results, while undoubtedly important, only capture one aspect of the richness of a school's life – and this is true. So, if you want to gain a richer understanding as to what these incredibly diverse education providers are really like, look no further. So wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, whether you're running a marathon, or standing on a crowded train, or cleaning the bathroom, strap yourself in and enjoy my recent fascinating conversation with Ollie Lovell. Ollie Lovell, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thanks, James. Pleasure to be here. It's slightly surreal having this conversation because we've been we've been seeing a lot of each other in the last couple of days. So we should explain for the benefit of listeners, you're currently in the UK, in London, having been on a bit of a whirlwind tour, like an educational tour of some of England's educational establishments can you just explain what it is that you're doing here what was the what was the impetus for this trip and what have you been what have you been up to sure well the impetus part of the impetus was that i've been cooped up in melbourne for the past two years due to various lockdowns and things like that so it was time to get out but also you know i've been interviewing people around the world about education for more than five years now and um there's lots that's piqued my interest that I, and there's lots of answers I've been able to gain from the comfort of my own bedroom where I record from, but there's also a lot of answers I haven't been able to gain. And, and, and a lot of that is about actually going to see stuff in, in action. So the kind of three main things I was really keen to do was to see three schools, the self-managed learning college in Brighton, XP up in Doncaster and Michaela here in London. 
and I've literally just jumped off the train after my visit to Michaela this afternoon. Uh, and then I'm, you know, presenting at a couple of conferences as well, meeting a bunch of old online friends like yourself, James, and uh, also visiting my PhD supervisor in Germany. Brilliant. Thank you. And I'd like, if we get a chance, I'd like to, 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 to touch upon your, the PhD that you're doing because there's lots of shared areas of interest there with my own, with my own work. And so, so we're going we're gonna to sort of go through the, each of these three organizations, uh, SMLC, the Self-Managed Learning College, where, full disclosure, I used to work for a couple of years, based in Brighton, XP School up in Doncaster. And again, full disclosure, I accompanied Ollie on that trip. And so I know a lot more about that one than I do about the other two. And then Michaela. So so why is it that you selected those three organizations to visit out of all of the schools in, in these aisles? Yeah, well, um, as many people will be aware from listening to the podcast, my podcast, over the last few years, something that I've tried to do is really just breakthrough dichotomies about education and breakthrough prejudices around education and really just ask, you know, irrespective of who's doing the teaching, where they're doing the teaching, what their philosophies of education are and who the students are within their care, asking the question, what is it that we can, we can learn from them? So I've gone for SMLC, Self-Managed Learning College, which as it sounds is all about self-managed learning, pretty much one of the most liberal or flexible or student-directed formulas or approaches you could have through XP, which is kind of a bit of bit of standard teaching and a bit of expeditionary stuff and a bit of kind of real pastoral stuff, which we'll get into. And then right, right to Michaela, which is, you know, has a reputation as one of the strictest, if not the strictest schools in the world. So just, yeah, just trying to see the spectrum and, and in each case ask, what is it that educators can learn from, from this organization? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And so, and so I think that the, 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 they do represent three fairly sort of evenly I don't know how I don't know how you would draw that spectrum. I think that some people would probably think that something like XP is at the far end of the spectrum from, from Michaela. But I think that actually, if you like, like what we saw at XP, like we saw quite a few lessons that looked like pretty normal sort of looking lessons. And there's lots about XP that just feels pretty schooly. And we could maybe think of that as representing sort of roughly the midpoint where SMLC is, as you say, very, very self-directed and there are no lessons and the kids can do what they want when they want. There's no compulsion. It's sort of consent-based education, if you like. And XP, you could argue, you know, it's a mainstream school. They do GCSEs. It's mandatory and so on. And you could put that roughly in the middle of the spectrum. And as you say, Michaela is much more sort of strict and top-down and everything's sort of nailed down and controlled at the far end of the spectrum. Would you agree with that characterization of the spectrum before we, before we get into this further? For sure. <laughs> okay short and sweet all right so let's take them in turn smlc and i haven't really discussed this a great deal with you what were your first impressions what did you notice there what surprised you sure well i guess a bit a bit of the background like i was really i came across the self-managed learning college through discussion with you and hearing about ian cunningham the creator of smlc the 79 year old dancing bicycle riding powerhouse that continues to drive the organization but also through Naomi Fisher who I had on and many people will be familiar with my podcast with Naomi Fisher about self-directed learning student-directed learning or changing our minds is the t- t- title of her book 
she in particular talked about her son, well, both her students, both her kids go to self-managed learning college. And she particularly talked about her son and the way he kind of didn't fit in standard education, but he'd found a real home at SMLC. And so that was kind of integrated with or crossed over with a lot of the thinking I've done in the past about the idea of like empowering students. And often I just get the feeling like when I'm at the front of a class teaching content, I'm thinking like, why am I doing this? Like there's there's better people in the world, but there's people in the world who have explained this concept better, right? And there's videos of them online, especially when I'm teaching like year 12 physics. So you can like go on and watch the same content from me, MIT lecturers. Like, why am I doing this? Couldn't I just be like supporting students to, to watch stuff? And, and also myself, like there's a couple of ways I like to engage with content. One is I like to watch and listen to things online. And the benefit of that is I can actually pause if I don't understand. I can rewind. I can rewatch. I can fast forward, which is what I do probably most of the time. Or I like to have like a more intensive kind of one-on-one engagement like we're having now, James, or like I have in the podcast. I feel like often an in-between, like when I'm sitting in a class and I'm one of 30 or if I'm sitting in a lecture, I'm one of 200, that can actually be really inspiring uh, often if there's a really great speaker there. But often there's this like I can't pause if I don't understand. I can't. It's hard to Google something in real time because I lose the thread. If I have a question Sometimes I'm a pretty assertive person, so often I will ask my question, but often have 20 questions and it's it's not my place to kind of take over the whole talk. So I, I have had these questions about like essentially the efficiency of like a teacher standing at the front of a class. You know, is that really the best way to be transmitting content and would the role of a teacher be more effective elsewhere? So I guess all of these things kind of came together to make me think, you know, there's got to be something in this kind of self-managed thing and let me go to somewhere that's been doing it for, I don't know, how long has it been going for, Jason? 40 years? I don't know. So Ian's been doing self-managed learning stuff since the 70s, so at least 50 years, I think. And he ran a, first of all, he ran a self-managed undergraduate degree where there was there were no entry requirements because he was like, where would you have entry requirements for a degree? Like you want everyone to get to the same end point. But it doesn't matter where they're starting from. And so he had people with no prior qualifications doing incredible work. So he, he ran a, a self-managed undergraduate course, and he's been doing lots of work in workplaces and in democratic education all around the world. And then he thought, why don't I do something closer to home? And so that's been, I think it's 20 years. I think it was around like early 2000s, 2001, two, when he when he set up the, the first version of SMLC in his own home, opening up his home to to young people for five mornings a week, which is I mean, he's such a unique guy. Like, I don't know anybody else who's ever done that. And then as it's grown, it's, it, it's moved to a few different premises. And it's now, I think there's about 40 or 50 kids there now. I think about 60 now, yeah. Is there 60? Okay, yeah. In, in a, what, what's this sort of like a former... It's office block, yeah. Yeah, an office block down on the seafront. So I think 20 years uh, in, in its sort of current format. Yeah, so exactly. So like, why why don't I go to see it being done in supposedly one of the, the best places in the world. So so what did I notice? I walked in, students were chilling, cruising around. I went in pretty early in the morning. Ian was generous with his time. He like accompanied me for the whole morning. They, they do like a morning session and an afternoon session. They haven't always done that, but they have so many students now that they kind of need to break it up like that. The morning session runs for, I think it's nine till one. And so basically the first thing that happened when when we walked in is there's like a community meeting. And in that meeting, it's essentially the the timetable for the day is basically free, and the the te- the teachers I can't remember what they call them learning 
not learning facilitators. Do you remember the phrase? Learning advisors, I think. Yeah, the learning advisors, the benefits of having the interviewer used to be working at the place that we're talking about. The learning advisors are there. There's a languages teacher who's a learning advisor. There's a physics and maths teacher. There's an English humanities teacher. And they just say to the students, like, who wants some time today? Does anyone want a, I don't think they call them lessons, but let's call them lessons because that's basically what they are. Does anyone want a lesson? Does anyone want some one-on-one time? And students just raise their hand and they write it up on the board. There's like the timetable for the day or like blocks of time. It's not a timetable, open windows of time. The learning advisor will write students' names and they'll say, is that cool? Great. I guess another thing worth noting is they say, who wants to chair this community meeting? And so in my case, in the case on the day I was there, like a probably like 11-year-old raised his hand and he was chairing the meeting, which meant that he was kind of just pointing at people when they had their hand up. He did struggle. He lost lose concentration a couple of times and there was a lot of like the learning advisors pointing at the students, but, but still he was given that put in the driver's seat and then the students go off. So a lot of the students kind of went off to do just work on some projects they'd been working on for a while. So there were a bunch of students who went to work on art projects. Some students were sewing, making costumes, which was something that was obviously interested in. A bunch of students went and started just coding in both like scratch and also more like actual languages. Some students started to do math stuff and then a bunch went off to work with a teacher. So there's, there are students. So it goes from, I think it's about nine to 16, the ages of the of students at the SMLC. And so there are students going for their GCSEs, which is like the 16 year old qualifications and well, 16 to 70 year old qualifications in the UK for those who aren't from the UK. So there are students doing that. So quite a few of them went into like a lesson essentially with a teacher to focus on GCSE content and they were choosing to do that. Yeah. And I just tried, kind of walked around and tried to work. And then there was, there was a, like a, there was a bunch of students. There was one student in particular who was a bit of a ringleader of this, who were just kind of running around, throwing stuff, having fun. They were distracting the other students a little bit, but they definitely got pulled up when they were, well, they kind of half got pulled up when they were distracting other students. They also kind of just were in the same space being noisy a fair bit. Yeah, and so it was just this mix of of students who were like being really focused, obviously working towards longer-term goals and and making some great gains and and a bunch of students who were not super focused on learning. That was the kind of things I, main things I saw. Yeah. Just quickly, before I ask my next question, I just wanted, I just wanted to, sort of, to correct a bit of language. If, if Ian was here, I think he would say that he wouldn't, he wouldn't describe it as a lesson uh-huh. when, when, the, when the tutor or the learning advisor says, do you want to have a session or something? But they're not lessons in the sense that they're not pre-planned. You would, you don't, you're not sort of covering a curriculum in a systematic way that kids can then sort of opt into or out of. Uh, SMLC, it's essentially just sort of like you, you start by saying which bit of the subject are you, are you struggling with today? Or maybe they'll review some curriculum materials together and they'll agree a focus. But I wouldn't call it a lesson because that suggests that it's sort of like pre-planned and that there are resources and it's not that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so I sat in on I sat in on one like couple of quote-unquote lessons or a couple of sessions and um, with the maths teacher, maths learning advisor, and the maths learning advisor just basically sat down and said, cool, what do you want to do today? And in the first one, they were just like, they just worked together through, it was, it was mostly driven by the, the learning advisor here. People know that when I say teacher, I mean learning advisor, but I'm so used to saying teacher that that's, that might come out sometimes. It was most, that session was mostly driven by the learning advisor and he was kind of like picked up one question and was just asking, prompting the students to answer it together. And it was like one long problem solving question that went for the whole 50 minutes or whatever it was. And the other one I went in, um, they just said, 
what do you want to do? And this student said, I want to practice completing the square. And he said, oh, we did that last time. That's boring. <laughs> and it was like, you really want to do that? And the student was like, yeah. Was like, okay. So how long do you want to do that for? And the student said, five minutes. He said, oh, that's what you said last time. You spent the whole session on it. All right, let's see if it takes five minutes. So they ended up spending like 40 minutes doing a completing the square question. But, you know, that was, that was motivating for that student. And that student then went off and went like, after that session and just like started doing some more completing the square questions because that's what he wanted to focus on that day. So yeah, that's what that session looked like. Mm, okay, thanks. And how did you find that as a, as a mainstream teacher? Because as somebody who worked there for a couple of years, it's so it's quite jarring to go to go from what you what is very highly regimented, you know, like school format where everything's very tightly controlled. And for example, if there were kids messing around and distracting other kids, that would be cracked down on quite hard and swiftly, and there would be consequences and so on. How did you find it? Did it sort of was it triggering anything in you? Did you were you surprised by anything? Did you feel any tension or any conflicts about that space? So when I had Naomi Fisher on, she really talked about this kind of like decompression phase that a lot of students need to go through. So a lot of students or a reasonable number of students come to SMLC because they've had a really, really horrendous experience at school. Like they've been chronically bullied or like just had messaging from teachers that they're basically worthless or know nothing or they've just they've really struggled to regulate themselves and so they've been getting detentions for petty things over and over again like tapping their pen on the table or whatever and and then they just essentially broken by the system it's probably one fair way in many contexts to put it and you know some kids are like suicidal because they've been bullied so poor so much or you know and so Part of the thesis that, that Naomi suggested was that a lot of the time they need to decompress, they need to just be, draw, you know, play computer games, chill for a period of time, then eventually they will come around and start regulating and set some goals and things like that. So if I am to hold that as a hypothesis, then it's necessary for me to look at that scenario and say, okay, maybe that's what those students need. But I don't know. Right. And so the question is always, could, you know, could they be nudged a little bit more? Could they be supported a little bit more? It was my feeling that the student who was being most disruptive could have been probably encouraged a bit more, right? Because he was just given like total free reign. So yeah, there was that. But it's so hard to know what's going on when you go in somewhere for a day, right? And I, I talked to him and I said, you know, what about this student? And he said, you know, he might take six months, he might take a year, but I believe that he will come around eventually and he'll settle and you know the culture of this place will bring him around etc 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 i then asked the students like i said you know if this is a question i asked in every school if there's anything you could change about this place what would you change and um one of the things that the students said was they should be more strict on students because there's some kids here who aren't here to learn they're here to stuff around and they should just kick them out. So that was really interesting because it was very counter to the view of the many of the learning advisors and Ian himself. And then I asked them, I said, has there ever been like a student who's like really disruptive, but then like after six months, you know, they, or a year, they really come, come round and they, they focus. And I was just talking about five students here all doing their GCSEs and they all said like in unison, no. <laughs> and, and so, but you know, they haven't been there for as long. But it was interesting to get that perspective from them. So I don't know where the truth lies. It's not possible for me to attain that truth in a short period of time. And there's no one thing that happens. It's not like every kid comes around in that environment or every kid doesn't come around, I'd imagine. But I guess probably one of the main takeaways for me from that whole 
visit to SMLC is that like there are students for whom that is a fantastic learning environment and one that's very well suited to them. And so like I saw a number of students like that, but I'm not sure that it's like, and therefore I'm happy it exists, but I'm not sure for what percentage of the population that's, that's going to be the best approach. Yeah. So, so these things are very, very, in this country, at least they're like hen's teeth. Like there's hardly any, there's SMLC, there's a Sudbury style school in Kent or Essex somewhere. There's Summerhill, there's the cabin that Sophie Christophe runs. There's, there's a place in Bristol. I'm aware of a handful, Summerhill, obviously. And there, there probably are at least a couple of other dozen handfuls spread across the country that I'm not aware of, but they're often really small scale. Uh, Sweeney as well down in down in Cornwall that uh, my friend Kath was running. There's definitely a need for it, I think, because of the fact that these things are. As, and, and in other countries, in France and, for example, in Israel, there are quite large state state funded, self directed learning schools. And so it does seem that there's. I think that there's more of a demand for that stuff than than there is supply at the moment is my sense but also it probably like i don't know you could argue that it may be more suitable for a, for a small number of, of people's overall or young people overall yeah totally and i mean one of the other things i i did in each of the three schools were in addition to asking you know if there's anything you could change what would you change i thought how would i have fared in this school and at smlc i thought i probably would have actually really liked it you know i'm a pretty self-motivated kind of a person that's always been the case I think I probably would have done pretty well I would have been engaged in a lot of interesting things I think it also depends upon the learning advisors who are there because it's very dependent upon who you who you have to potentially form a relationship what adult role models you have as options that was something that Naomi really emphasized when she talked about de-schooling or, or sorry unschooling she's like it's not about like just leaving kids to do anything they want all day long it's about actually providing them with lots of opportunities to engage with different people with different experiences and seeing which ones resonate for them and then allow them to develop interests in those areas and support the development of those interests and the pairing of them with supportive adults and mentors and role models and things like that. So I think it would depend a lot on that too. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question to ask. What, how would I have fared in, the, in this environment? One of the things that, that surprised me the most about SMLC is that when you give kids much more choice over what they do and when and how, especially as it relates to big summative assessments, they often make very different decisions than are made in their name by adults. And just to give a, like a couple of examples of that, like there was one kid there who I remember had taught himself Mandarin to a really, really high standard. He didn't have any Chinese relatives or anything. He just was a, he was a super bright kid, just taught himself Mandarin because he thought it would, it would be interesting. And somebody said to him, oh, you should do a GCSE in it because you'll definitely get an A. And he just said, well, why would I need to do that? Like, I know I can speak Mandarin. Like, I don't need to get some, to do some, jump through some hoops and just get a badge just to prove that I can do something. And so I'm not going to do that. And, and likewise, there's a, there's a student, because I used to be a science tutor. So, so at SMLC, the learning advisors are sort of generally have some sort of a subject specialism. And mine was science and psychology. And I remember was working with this girl and she was just naturally really quick at picking up concepts and science. I was working with her in year 10. And I can remember saying something like in an early session, you know, trying to encourage her and saying, you know, you're really good at this. Like you're genuinely, I've worked with lots of kids on science. You're really quick to grasp concepts and you could do really well at this, that you could get an A. This was back when we had an A star grades rather than numerical ones. And she said, 
first of all, like, thank you. That's really kind of you, and it's nice to hear that. But also, I don't want an A in this subject. Like, I'm not really into science. She was really into arts and music, and she was a musician. And she just said, like, I, I need a C to get into college. And so that's all I want to do. So just put me in for the foundation paper. I probably won't really even need to revise. I've got a guaranteed C, and I can spend my time doing other stuff. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Like, like that's a perfectly rational decision to make, to say, like, yeah, I just need it. And, and we were talking about this the other day. In my university course, you only needed 40% in the first year. It didn't count towards your final grade. You only need 40% in each in each of your modules to pass. And I just I played that game to within an inch of its life, and I got, like, 41 43 42%, and just scraped through because I just thought, why try really hard to do really well when it doesn't count for external stuff and if it's not important to you? That's a smart decision to make, but the, but the whole narrative in schools is that there's, like, an, a moral imperative to get the, every possible grade out of every possible kid, and we'll use every trick in the book, every accountability measure, every bit of, of high-stakes whatever low stakes testing and all of the tricks and tools that we use to get every single grade out of every single kid and if you give those kids the choice they would often make decisions that run really counter to the decisions that are made in their name and that's really surprising Mm. that's not really a question it's just a comment yeah well i agree i agree and it's part of you know part of growing up it's about prioritization i was chatting to gwyn apari of uh, xp the other day obviously because i was there and um he was saying, you know, he's every day he's he's got a couple of lists. One's called an ideas list of things he could do. Then he every morning he like takes a cup, usually two, maybe two or three things from the ideas list and puts them on the get done list. And that's what he does on that day. And everything else is superfluous. And that's how he's managed to build a house, start a business, create multiple schools. Like, you know, it's about prioritization. And so, yeah, perhaps giving students opportunities to practice that gets helps them to get better at that but you know maybe also giving them some explicit instruction around that helps them to do it as well Mm, yeah okay so so have you got anything to add on smlc before we move on to xp yeah i guess i just really wanted to emphasize that i think it's really great that it exists and i think i think that at its core it holds the importance and the value of of young people at its heart and it really does provide a place for a lot of people to feel safe. That was actually a thread in, in all three schools, the importance of feeling safe, which is really interesting, you know, but it really does provide a safe space for a lot of people that, that couldn't find that elsewhere. And I think it would be great if we had some at least opportunities for more young people to try at least have a go at the level of self-direction that SMLC offers to see how it goes for them, you know, before they go into the big wide world and they have to do it all on their own from like cutting the umbilical cord essentially. Uh, I think to, to work out some way to fit that in uh, would be cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely much more closely resembles how you how you learn in, in life, in adult life, when you when you need to learn something new, if you need to figure out how to fix your bike or how to cook a meal or something, we learn in much more self-directed ways. And so you're sort of practicing those that 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 way of learning stuff early on and and they're muscles that you that you sort of that you can develop and learn and 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 i i think i'm a little bit with you that i would have more of a gradation so smlc i would start i would start out with it being a bit like a boot camp where it it is more sort of adult explicit instruction and supervision especially around you know like how to learn stuff effectively how to use search effectively on the internet how to you know like to check the check the quality of sources and information and so on and that they then sort of earn their wings 
wings, if you like, and that they, they first of all say just on a Monday, they can just be self-directed and then we'll come back and see how they get on on a Tuesday and they can increase their the degree of freedom that they have as they show that they can hold that level of freedom. And to my mind, that would help to circumvent that problem that, you know, that, that kid at the moment who's just finding it difficult to control his behavior in that place where he's got so much freedom over it that he's sort of not able to hold that responsibility yet. I think that that would help to circumvent that problem. But Ian is a very wise man and he's been running this place for a really long time and he has quite an uncompromising stance on that. And he's like, you just hold the line and give them space. You know, there are accountability structures in there. Like you say, that each day starts with a learning community meeting. Then they go into learning group meetings. I don't know if you saw any of those where they get into a group of six people after that, which is mixed age. And there's a bit of accountability there where they sort of say, oh, what did you get up to yesterday? What did you find difficult? What's your plans for today? And so on. And the, and the learning advisor will write that down. And then so there's a sort of there is an ongoing conversation. It's not just a complete free for all. I think that's something I should have probably emphasized as well, like the the idea of talking about one's learning. So they have these student, teacher, parent conferences, I think once a term, and the parents come in and they have like the young person presents about their learning in a very similar way to they do at XP. And um, I think, you know, just getting that kind of thing as well, like we could revolutionize school report nights, make them so much more engaging for everybody involved by involving the students in reports of their learning. We could build metacognition, we could build motivation, we could build buy-in. I think that's super powerful. I think the, those learning groups are a great idea as well. Like, you know, James, I know you're in like a, a similar learning and accountability group yourself um, just to help you stay on track, and I'm really keen to get, get into something similar to, similar soon as well. But, you know, also that can be done well and that can be done poorly. And, you know, if students aren't committed to that, it's a question of what do you do then? And I saw a bit of that as well. I, went in, I did go into one of those groups and, you know, I'd say some of the students were super switched on and really making the most of that opportunity to reflect in a group and to get feedback and stuff. And some of the students just weren't really engaged in it. And just coming back to your your um, thing as well about maybe a boot camp thing, I actually think that a real value of, the, of SMLC is how radical it is, right? Like actually just just saying like we're literally gonna let you do whatever you want because it, there's just a real power in that in that freedom i think like i said it's not for everyone but the only way someone's going to work out if it is for them is by smlc holding that line and i think there'd be a real danger for a student who's kind of had just such negative experiences at school to come in and say well before you can do any work yourself you've got to do X, Y, and Z to show that you're capable of doing that. That could be a, a turn off for them in the first place. But I think one one thread is like, and we were talking about this the other day, like I just see a lot of power and diversity of education. And if there is an Ian Cunningham in the world who has this vision, it's great that he can make that happen and that that can be an option for people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just to be clear for people, so SMLC, it used to be state-funded, it used to be council-funded, and then there was a change of council, and it is now privately funded, and so they have hardship bursaries and stuff for kids who can't afford the fees, and it runs very cheaply compared to a state school. It runs at, like, less than half the price of a state school, and this and the, the adult-to-student to ratio is something like one to six compared to like one to 30. And so it's an incredibly efficient model. And I think that there is a case for having at least one of these in every in every community, because like you say, many more kids could potentially thrive in that environment. And, and for me as well, just as a final point on this, 
There are lots of things that happen at SMLC that don't show up on the spreadsheets, you know, like like you say, lots of kids there do do uh, GCSEs. And interestingly, talking to Naomi Fisher about some of the democratic learning communities that she used to send her kids to in France, SMLC is pretty mainstream compared to some of them because they do have subject tutors. They do do most of the kids do five GCSEs to get by correspondence to get on to get into college, and that's still seen in some like, in some areas of the democratic education world as as being pretty mainstream stuff. But there are things that that come through there around um, like the kids being able to be to be like you say to feel safe, to develop confidence, to develop interpersonal skills, and the ability to chair a meeting. For example, that like you were saying, an eleven-year-old learning how to chair a, a big meeting with adults in it as well. The importance of democratic participation, so they vote on stuff all the time. The kids have a budget that they that they buy the things for the kitchen and they decide what they're going to buy, what peanut butter or coffee or whatever it is that they want. And, and to learn how to regulate their behavior in that environment where they where there is lots of freedom. I think that those things are very, very difficult to measure, but are absolutely invaluable to develop in young people. And, and that's something that SMLC does really well. And I don't think that it's, it's easy to sort of to bottle that and to capture it and to, to quantify it and to say this happens here. But having worked there for a number of years and, and worked there with young people who I'd seen really struggling in mainstream schools, I could see the value of that unmeasurable stuff just by living it every day. So there's, there's yeah, there's lots going on there. Yeah, and one, one final thing on that, like in reading Ian's book, like for a lot of these students, you know, they wrote reflections like when they graduated from SMLC, things like, I made friends at SMLC and I never had friends before that, you know, and now I have friends like that's friggin' huge. And, you know, one student wrote, I'd probably be dead if it wasn't for SMLC, you know, that's where I was at before I found this place. So like, like that's the intent. It's not intangible. It's kind of intangible, but in terms of standardized metrics, it's intangible. That's the intangible stuff that is, that's crucial. Just friggin' keeping people alive for long enough for them to, to kind of find themselves like, it's fundamental. Yeah, I've I've heard a few people say that as well. Like Ian Cunningham is a lifesaver because of this this haven that he's provided for these kids who were struggling, to say the least, elsewhere. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. That's fascinating. So let's move on to XP. So we had a little road trip up to Doncaster. If anybody hasn't heard of XP, what would be like your sort of like three sentence, or it doesn't have to be three sentences, but just a short introduction to what this school is and how it's different. What are the key things that mark it out? Yeah, sure. Good question. So um, Andy Sprakes and Gwyn Apharry, two educators from Doncaster who work together. Gwyn's got a background in kind of computer stuff and he's was a head, a head teacher at another school beforehand. They, in a various order, went to high tech high in the States and also checked out some of the EL schools, the Ron Berger EL schools, and they've tried to take the best from both. And so the main ingredients of XP that are different from a mainstream school are crew, which is essentially a conscious building of community in small groups of young people with a dedicated 45 minutes each each week plus outdoor ed experiences at the start of each year to try to build those relationships and those 12 to 13 people are with a with a teacher yeah james sorry just to interrupt there you said each week so so i think you meant to say each day so this each day starts each day 
yeah, so it's 45 minutes of essentially what, what we would normally consider to be tutor time in a normal school or in a mainstream school. But So this is 45 minutes, and it's, it, like you say, in a smaller group of like 12 or 13 kids, and they sit in a circle for lots of that time, and they talk about their feelings and things like that. So just to clarify. 100%. Thanks for that correction. And crew also includes a community meeting on Fridays, which takes two hours, and they do appreciations, apologies, and stands, which means, you know, they appreciate other people, uh, they apologize for things, and they make stands. And essentially make stands is holding holding the, the community or individuals within the community to account and into account in relation to the school's values and our habits of work and learning and, and, and things like that. And the other main thing that they do is expeditions, so expeditions which occur a few times. I'm going to get this wrong. I think there's two to, about two, two to three expeditions per year. And they're essentially a project-based learning endeavour of 10 to 12 weeks and the students work towards producing a really beautiful product, might be a book, might be a film, might be an a art exhibition, You based around a social justice issue pretty much always, often rooted in the local community. And that is presented to an authentic audience, which often includes like dignitaries from the community, parents, friends, uh, teachers, things like that. And they try to, insofar as is possible, in their standard lessons, which they still do, towards these expeditions. So link the learning and maths towards this expedition, link the geography learning towards this expedition. So a lot of it looks like a standard school if you just go around between different lessons, but then there's got the crew and the expeditions as well, James. Yeah. And so just for the benefit of listeners, because I struggled with this for a while when I was speaking with, when I had Andy Sprakes on the podcast, I spoke with two of the students as well. And I knew that they did this sort of like outdoor, this outdoor pursuits thing or outward bounds element to what they do. So at the start of year seven, they take the whole year group away for a week. And I think that they do something similar with, with the staff annually as well. I may be mistaken, but I think that that's the case. And they go away for a week and they have this very immersive experience. And it's all based around this metaphor of like getting to the top of the mountain. And it helps them to sort of to really understand the principle of crew. And so when they were talking about expeditionary learning, I was sort of getting confused with the idea of that, that and the idea of going on an expedition. So an expedition, it seems to me to be a really smart way of doing things. This, this was a, a light bulb moment that sort of came on at some point in the last, during the visit to XP, where I sort of just thought like, like the normal timetable that you have in a, in a school day, if you go like, I've got maths, then I've got French, then I've got geography, then I've got history, then I've got art or whatever. It's just a quite a boring list <laughs> that somebody else has done. And it, it's like, there's no meat on that bones. It's not like, oh, I'm doing this in French, I'm doing this in art or music or PE. It's just like, I've just have this list of stuff to, to walk through and it's kind of dead like kids use this word dead don't they to just go like this is just like lifeless it's just boring to the max and the expeditionary learning that they do at xp is really meticulously mapped against the national curriculum standards but it just seems to me that it's just a really smart way of bringing the learning to life so they're covering lots of the same ground the stuff that's in the national curriculum but they're working on a project with, like you say, with real-world authentic outcomes, like with regards to immigration or poverty or food banks or whatever it is, like you say, there's often some sort of a moral dimension to what they're doing, although not always. And it just seems to me a really smart way to bring what's otherwise just a quite a boring list of subjects to life in a way that feels like it's, you know, something that you can get animated about. Mm. Couldn't agree more. 
<laughs> again not really a question mark on the end of that one it was just sort of explaining for the benefit of listeners about about these expeditions okay so so we, we've we've covered a bit of the nuts and bolts of xp and the, yeah like you say the, the two main things are crew and expeditionary like cross-curricular learning and so talk us through your reflections on what you saw as you went through the day so i guess one of the things that really made me want to go to xp was the idea of crew so what they do, as you said, at the start of every year, and this includes the start of year seven when the, the school starts, it's not a primary school, well, not XP East and XP, though they do have associated primary schools, is they go on this outward bound trip, which is essentially like a multi-day challenging climb a mountain type activity. And I did a similar thing with a group of year nine students, year nine boys last year at my school, the school that I work at. And it was just such an f- amazing experience. The one I went on was nine days, nine days with like 15 young men. I don't think I knew any of those boys who I went with beforehand. Oh, no, one or two. I taught them in, in, in my class. But the bonds that I formed with those students and the bonds that they formed with each other was just absolutely phenomenal. And it blew me away how close you could get to these students and the relationships you could build with them just in such a short time investment. You know, like how much do you usually get out of like a week and a half of school? Well, you know, it can be quite a lot in terms of learning, but it relationally, like to get that sort of a bang for your buck time-wise is just crazy. And so when I heard that they do this at XP, I thought, wow, if that's something they're actually leveraging, that makes so much sense. Now, I, I built these relationships with these 15 year nine boys and then I haven't taught any of them since I basically haven't seen any of them since. Right. So this is like young men who I was like, Oh, you know, I've got the book that I really know you're going to read. Here's a book you're going to read. Let's talk about, I'm going to talk about investing with you. I'm going to talk about like productivity habits with you. And like, you know, we were just really getting on so well and forming some, the basis of some really rich relationships. And then it just hasn't been capitalized on just because of the structure and, you know, just happenstance but at xp it's like we're making this relational investment at the start of every year and then we're going to be in this crew 45 minutes every morning plus a bit of extra time on friday as well and to me it makes so much sense that in every school every student knows has one adult that they have an authentic relationship with and they know they can rely on to have their back uh, no matter what and that's again coming back to that mental health thing coming back to that youth suicide thing like if we just had that coming back to that, you know, going to that school shooting thing, how many school shootings would we see if these young people had gone on and been supported by a wonderful group of supportive classmates and a supportive teacher? Like I just don't see that happening, right? So that was the main thing I was keen to see at XP and the expeditionary learning stuff. I thought that sounds, that sounds really cool as well, but I wasn't as interested in that. So impressions, what did I see and how did it differ from what I expected? Crew seemed good. Crew seemed great. You know, 15 minutes, they they seemed to have a good bond. The students were at the school were very polite. They did seem close and like they were getting on really well. Speaking to the students, and we can talk about the student ambassador tour soon as well. James, you might want to talk about that a little bit even. Speaking to the students, like they, there was a real sense of pride about the the work they were doing. And the expedition, something else that really struck me was the ability of the school to react to what's actually happening in the world. So the expeditions were about stuff like the pandemic, honouring the health workers, you know, being proud of the local minoring history of Doncaster, 
or Donny, as they like to say, uh, the local rail history, the, these kind of things of connecting with community. The students really, like, they felt a sense of home. Another one that which is fantastic, like making a film about local migrants and literally changing the views of the local community and their parents about migrants through this project. Like, you don't get much more meaningful learning than that, right? So this, yeah, that was that was just phenomenal. And then I saw a bunch of... Um, classroom teaching that was probably pretty similar to the cross-section you'd see at most standard high schools i saw a couple of really great teachers who are really holding the class really well and obviously a lot of learning is happening and i saw some teaching where there was you know a non not insignificant number of students with their heads on the desk and or staring into space and stuff like that so you know again some things that xp does really really well and some areas where where they know they they're already working on to improve them yeah, thank you. I think that let's just come back. I picked you up on crew first. So, so yeah. So we were in this this crew session, forty five minutes, and and it, it was probably quite a disruptive element because there was you and I, and then there were two other visitors who were invited to join the circle, and so that disrupts like a group size that isn't that big to begin with. You know that that makes quite a quite a difference, and and it's going to make people a little bit more self conscious about how they interact later on in the day. There was a surprise cameo by somebody, I won't mention them by name, but like somebody who I've known for a long time through Twitter, who's recently started working at the school, not in a teaching, not in a teaching role. I reckon you should mention him by name. I reckon, I reckon he'd like to be acknowledged. All right. Okay. Alex Weatherall. Hi, Alex. Thank you. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'd- Hi, Alex. So he was reflecting on the difference of having taught for like, I think he's taught for like 15 or 20 years or something in other schools. And he was talking about tutor time. And the standard thing in tutor time in this country, at least, is that you have 15 minutes a day at the start of each day to take the register. But that that 15 minutes is all accounted for. So like on Monday, there are like notices to, to fill out or maybe some form to fill out or a survey. On Tuesday, there's like silent reading. On Wednesday, Wednesday, there's the assembly. Thursday, there's a quiz that's all pre-made by somebody or whatever it is. And that, every minute of the, that time is, is accounted for. And you don't have the ability to, to really check in with those kids and to really get to know them in that way. In the session that we saw, the, the teacher, had, the, the, the crew leader had taken the register already. And then they did this emoji activity where they put 12 emojis on the board which you can imagine there's like a crying one and a surprise one and a happy one and a sleepy one and all the rest of it. This was a Monday morning. And so each kid had to pick an emoji and and relate it to their weekend and, and give a reason. And that was their way of checking in. And then the, the crew leader would say, are you checked in? And so just make sure that they, that they said everything that they had to say before they moved on. And that's a lovely piece of practice. And it's something that I spoke about a bit with Adele Bates, who I had on the podcast a while ago, who wrote the book, Miss I Don't Give a Shit, which is all about behavior, which is a really interesting read. And she talked about how like, it's the job of, like when you're doing the register, that's a really good opportunity to check in with the emotional state of, of your kids. And at first, you know, you would go around and they would just go like tired, tired, bored, bored, tired, sleepy, whatever. But then they start to use different language and you start to, it becomes a little wind window into their heads and you go oh okay that kid is really withdrawn today there's something going on there i'll maybe go and check in with them and so 
And so having that bit of breathing space and that time to check in with those kids at the start of Monday morning and at the end of Friday as they go off into their weekend and at the start of each day as well, it just felt like that the safeguarding aspect of that pastoral system was so strong. And, the, and the, 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 we mentioned, for example, there were a couple of kids that we saw that I saw in lessons as well who had their head on the table. And you might think, oh, well, you know, that wouldn't happen in Michaela, right? Like that just wouldn't be allowed to, to, to happen. But the people I was talking to were saying, we, you know for sure that that will get fed back to the crew leader and the crew leader will be aware that that was happening and they'll go, okay, there's some issue with that kid emotionally or they're not getting enough sleep or nutrition or whatever it might be, that there's much more of a, of a joined up sort of like set of communication around each of the kids. And that's partly be, partly because it's so so small. There are only 50 kids in each year group. And so they're able to to really know each student. Yeah, I also wanted to say something else they did in the morning was an equipment check. They made sure everyone had a pen and their ruler and their calculator, had enough battery on the iPad. So, you know, just that simple equipment check as well is a really great routine to ensure that students are ready for learning. Absolutely, yeah, which which was, again, a, it's a very standard thing, but it was really nicely done. And she literally had to go around and each kid had to say how much battery they had on their on their device. And it was like 14%. Like, oh, that'll probably get you through just like, you know, keep an eye on it and so yeah that was that was really lovely and and and, and quite standard practice you, you you know that you would think that that should be happening everywhere and so it's a significant time commitment though isn't it 45 minutes a day instead of 15 minutes a day so that's two and a half hours a week of extra tutor time and, this, and the school day doesn't start any earlier than a normal school day and so that's like time that's taken out of, of lesson time plus two hours as you mentioned on a Friday afternoon for this appreciations and apologies and people taking a stand about various things that's so that's four and a half hours it's almost one full day like if there's, there's, there's a five hours in a school day that's almost 20 percent of of the curriculum time given over to this to this pastoral practice which is astonishing really yeah especially given their results so clara the the new head was telling us about how they've done they allow students in by lottery essentially random numbers out of a hat they take anyone there is a huge diversity of students there and they've um got the second or third best gcse results out of the 18 schools in the local area despite allocating so much time to this pastoral stuff and you know essentially losing a day of instructional time each week like that's the amount that you get for bringing in crew for how much you lose in terms of academics if that's what you care about the trade-off seems like a bit of a no-brainer to me absolutely and it's probably also worth mentioning that it's mixed ability all the way through they don't set by ability at all and we, we had a conversation if you remember with an English teacher who talked about how she found that quite challenging at times because you you know you need to be able to stretch kids who need to be stretched but also make sure that other people feel included but that that sense that I got from from being in the classroom and also the fact that it's non-uniform and so it's sort of quite inclusive in that way there, there are kids in a room in the same room together where what some of them are working towards you know the highest possible grades you can get and others of them don't look like they've had enough sleep and they've just got their head on the table or they're spending the whole lesson coloring in the title of the poster that they're working on or whatever. And so it feels like it's a very inclusive environment. You, you know, they, I'm sure that some people would say that's, that's like unforgivable that you're sort of allowing, allowing standards to slip. But as you say, that isn't bearing out in the data. It's in the top two or three performing schools in Doncaster. It's well above average. It's rated by Ofsted as being outstanding. 
and so as you say you know the, the evidence seems to be seems to be clear that that, that it does work there and I, and i found it quite reassuring and I, th- I think you did as well that we saw some lessons that we sort of thought as has been fairly sort of average lessons you know it, it's not like the, the the teaching is insanely good across the board and everything's really nailed down and that's why this model works it's like this is this is the the normal stuff that you would see in a normal school and they were very sort of like they, there was no pretense was there. They were like, they would like just walk into any classroom you like. There was no sense of being guided. They, they had us, they offered us, we could go into a cover lesson if we wanted to. And, and the, the two, the two people who were with us were allowed to go into that cover lesson. And so they're, they're really sort of open source about what they're doing and they want people to see them as they are and not to put on a show, which I thought was really quite something. Mm. Yeah, it was great. Okay, well, let's get to, so, so we've done this, a couple of the lessons. What about, so we did an ambassador tour, like the two students took us on a tour around the school, which you later cited as a highlight of the day. What was it about the, the student tour that you found enlightening? It was just, it was just great to see those students. They were like really proud about what they'd done. They were able to say, you know, in grade seven, we did this project and here's my portfolio with the work in it. Here, year eight, here's here's we did this project and you know they just they were like really beaming with pride essentially just about the impact that had on the community how much they'd learned the the beauty of the products that they'd produced and uh, you know there was just a real feeling there of like all students should should have done stuff that they feel this proud of like it's a it's a beautiful thing so yeah that that really i guess brought home to me or helped to bring home the value of the the expeditions and you know, expeditions are the kind of thing that primary schools do anyway. Like I would say a, a play, a production is in many ways an expedition, just maybe mi- minus the kind of social social good or social justice ingredient, which is I think is actually really crucial. But it's like working together to produce a high-value, beautiful end product that's got a really authentic audience. And if we think about the work that students usually do and the efforts they usually put in to create a school production, like often they dig really deep and there's a role for every student. You know, some students take more of a lead role than others, but everyone feels a part of it, hopefully. And so I really think that there is a space for schools to do expeditions. And I think it would add a lot, you know, if you did two of them per year, spread it out, it would really add a lot to student school experiences. And, and the same with the same with crew as well. I feel like crew, at least the start of the year outdoor ed thing, and, you know, maybe I don't know if you need 45 minutes every day, but conscious time set aside to build those relationships, to to do appreciations, apologies and stands, I think is super powerful and a massive contributor to the to the culture of the school. And it really did show, you know, like the environment was great. There wasn't litter. I didn't see a piece of litter in the yard. I didn't see a piece of litter inside. I literally checked under the desks for gum I saw some, but it was nowhere near what you'd see on a, at a standard school. You're so much more thorough than I am. <laughs> so, so what? So you know what they? I mean, yeah, this this stuff's indications of like the actual culture of a school, or like the traces that students leave behind, right? It was very impressive, and the the way that the culture has permeated the school is is apparent. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and just to pick up on a couple of bits there, you were talking about the activism thing. That comes through really strongly that, that this is a school that's engaged in 
trying very very transparently and proactively engaged in trying to make the world a better place as well as helping kids to to learn subjects and to get to get good grades and so on and there are a number of things that they do that are, that are arguably really quite traditionalist and potentially more so than you'd get in the average school they really take the idea of powerful knowledge on board but they they have this quite specific definition of powerful knowledge as knowledge that enables you to change the world you know the knowledge of power if you like their focus on beautiful work on drafting and redrafting and and the this pupils the students on that ambassador tour were able to talk about that and they said yeah we we often draft and redraft our work and as you go around it felt a bit like being in an art gallery at times you were just surrounded by incredible work all throughout the school and these these amazing displays and also these are displayed we, we saw displays out in the world that there's signs that have been erected around the around the city in art galleries in doctors waiting rooms that they've published a quite a wide range of books now that the students have have produced as the as the output of their project so they were doing a thing on for example like local mining community and they're publishing a, a resource that's going to that's literally like sold in waterstones it's like got an isbn number it's a proper published book and that's incredible right that's such a motivating thing that you think like, like we need to get our spelling right guys because like this is going to be published in waterstones like we need to we need to be really on top of this and so that that real world sort of authentic outcome i think makes the kids sort of raise their game and and realize that they are capable of producing beautiful work you know like maybe not at first and probably the probably the a famous exposition of that is that the little video that lots of people have seen of Austin's butterfly, which, you know, I'm sure you've seen that from, um, from Ron Berger's expeditionary learning school in the States, which was like a really young kid, like age three or four or something. And it takes you through how they drafted and redrafted this picture of a butterfly until they produced something that was just astonishing. And so that came through really strongly. And, and just as a final thing, if I may, this is sort of, not not just sharing more of my thoughts on this part because obviously I was there for this one. The thing that really hit me was about like the various ways in which this affected us and other people at the school emotionally. So like the, recently there was a documentary made called Above All Compassion, which is the, sub, the the motto of the school. And you said, didn't you, that like it made you sort of almost well up a few times watching it. Significantly, yeah. Yeah, I certainly had the same experience. And that came through a few times with, as we were talking with Alex and with Mel, who works works for XP afterwards. Like they were both so, as, was, as they were talking, I noticed they were offering often sort of gesturing to their hearts and to their stomachs and to their guts as they were talking about the kids. And there was a few occasions when we almost welled up. And the thing that really got me was a thing that Andy Sprague said when we were talking to him over lunch. And he said that when he'd gone to visit High Tech High and he could see what these kids could do when you lift the lid off learning and he, he was on the flight on the way home and he felt this heavy weight of responsibility as he thought like, oh my God, we're going to have to go back and do something about this. We can't just visit that school and then not try and make this happen for the kids of Doncaster. But he said that he was reflecting on this one question in particular, why can't my kids do that? Why can't my kids do what those kids can do? And he came to the conclusion that it was because he as a school leader, had not provided them with the opportunities to do so. And then he said, he told this story about how when they started XP 
And as you can imagine, there was this mad scramble. I think that they were operating out of the side of a football stadium at the time because the premises weren't weren't there yet. And then they suddenly realised that it was going to be an open the open day, which is in like October in this country for the following year when the, all the prospective parents come around. And they suddenly thought, oh my goodness, we haven't prepared open day at all. What are we going to do? And somebody said, why don't we get the kids to do it? And he thought, oh, wow, okay let's do that but they really meant it like he didn't even speak at this open evening so the kids organized it they decided what they were going to do to explain he said that this one kid gave this incredible speech to to like to speak into a room full of like 200 adults and and he thought that was amazing he just knocked that out and then he went and looked at the kids notes afterwards and he had three words on a piece of paper it just said like community crew expeditions or something and he just spoke authentically and with meaning to this and from that day onwards like the school was ridiculously oversubscribed currently they have like 800 applications for 50 places every year as you say they, they choose by lottery and those kids had been at the school for five weeks that's the thing that really got me and gets me even now as, as we're thinking about it. Like if you lift the lid off <laughs> and you let you, you tell the kids that they can get to the top of the mountain, they can do anything as, as 11 year olds, they can organize a parent's evening and make the school oversubscribe. It just made me think like there's so much weight bearing down on all of us as teachers, as school leaders, the weight of expectations of the inspectors, of the government, of the high stakes accountability measures of performance related pay, of head teachers knowing that they could lose their job. And all that top down pressure is pushing down, 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 down through the leadership structures, down onto teachers. We know about all of the horrendous statistics around mental health and well-being among teachers and support staff and school leaders in particular as well as on young people and there's just all of that weight pressing down and we find that actually if you can figure out how to throw some pillars up right and just to to push the sky away and to hold a bit of space to allow those kids to breathe look what they can do within five weeks what can they do within five weeks? Like that to me is just like spine tinglingly sort of exciting that, that if we can figure out how to throw up some, some of those pillars at a system level and create that space, not in an SMLC like environment, but in a, in a mainstream school that's rated outstanding by Ofsted that performs well, according to the government's current metrics, those kids are able to, to shine in a really astonishing way. And that, to me, is just the, the strongest sort of sense of moral purpose that I think that I've felt in a long time with regard to why it is that we need to throw that weight back from whence it came. Again, not a question mark. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on that before we move on from XP? I guess, look, like XP is the kind of school that I'd want to send my kids to, basically like when I have them, hopefully. It's a good reflection of the values that I feel like I have and I'd like passed on to, to my kids. And and that for many reasons, including many of the ones you've you've talked about then, as with all schools, I've got things to work on. And I think for them at the moment, well, Gwyn talks about leadership development to really make the model sustainable. And, and in terms of what I saw, I think it's, it's probably the, the pedagogy side of things. Uh, and t- tightening up what's happening in the, the kind of standardized classroom environment. But that aside, it's um, it's phenomenal. And I really encourage people to, to check it out. And yeah, do crew. 
just do crew if you're a school do crew. <laughs> I mean, that seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? And they were talking about how how you can replicate that model, like by, for example, so so they they bring in you know higher level teaching assistants, other members of the ancillary staff or lunchtime supervisors, people who feel that they can they can hold that responsibility. So, for example, they were saying like in a primary school where they usually have two classes of, of 30, they break out into three classes of 20 for, for the crew sessions in the morning. And then they get back in with, with a sort of a, with a teaching assistant taking that third group. And then the teaching assistant works across those two groups for the rest of the day as they work through the, you know, through the curriculum. And so there are ways that you could scale it. And, and as we were talking with Clara, as you mentioned, the, the recently appointed head teacher, she was saying that she's, she's, there's, there's two essential the two key ideas to take away are crew and expeditionary learning. And she said that, that it would be easy for any school anywhere to incorporate those two elements. She said she wouldn't recommend doing both at the same time, which I think is probably good advice. And they're, they're looking, the big question that they get asked a lot, they, got, they certainly got asked a lot about it by me this week, was about scaling up. Like, how can we get to the point where there's an XP in every community? How can we join those dots? And they've sort of got three answers to that question. One is that they're growing the trust. So there's a multi-academy trust. And I think there's now eight schools in it in total, some primaries. A big question mark for me remains over how, how easy it would be to convert a large secondary school to this model. They say that you could do it by breaking the school up into a schools within schools approach, but that's going to be quite a complicated thing to do for an existing secondary school. I'm not sure whether you'd have to work at year seven and work it through for five years. I think that that's just too much of a snap change to, to make in one go. So, so they're bringing schools into the trust. The second thing is that they're, they're doing outreach work. They're essentially doing co- like consultancy work with, with other groups of schools to help them. So, for example, they're working with a large group of schools in Scotland and they're developing a clan model, of course, rather than crew. And then the third thing, which is really exciting, which is I, I won't, I won't uh, say too much about this, but they're developing a way that other schools will be able to incorporate some of their thinking. I don't think that they've really announced that yet, so I won't talk about that. But they're, they're, they're looking at this scaling up question and they're working in a really smart, incredibly productive, fast way. Like they're, they're, they're cooking on gas up there. There's something in the water in Doncaster. So, yeah, that's where my heart lies as well. I think that I'm a middle road guy and XP seems to me to be the middle way that, that works. But as you say, it's not perfect and nor should it be. You know, it'd be worrying if it, if it seemed to be perfect wouldn't it because then it wouldn't be reproducible so easily so yeah hello folks following the success of the recent rethinking education conference we're now looking at various ways in which we can advance the cause of this movement to do whatever it takes to create a more diverse educational ecosystem that works for all young people If you would like to support the Rethinking Education movement or show your appreciation for these podcasts, you can do so in a few different ways. If you'd like to make a one-off donation, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod, R-E-P-O-D. If you would like to make a regular monthly donation, you can become a patron of the podcast. There are three different levels at which you can do so, each of which are associated with different benefits. To become a patron of the podcast, please visit patreon.com forward slash repod. Again, that's R-E-P-O-D. 
If you can't afford to contribute financially, you can help in many other ways by joining the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, for example, and by inviting your friends and colleagues to do the same. In this community, we are continuing to watch the video contributions to the online Rethinking Education conference. You can join the conversation and interact with speakers and other rethinkers all over the world at rethinking-education.mn.co. There's a link in the show notes. Or you can like and subscribe and give us a positive review or comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or by sharing our social media posts on a platform of your choosing. There are links again to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. Thank you for your attention. Now let's get back to this week's fascinating conversation with Ollie Lovell. All right, so Michaela, I'm really interested to hear this because I haven't heard your thoughts on this at all. And so you, so you went to visit Michaela this very morning. And so talk me through it. What, did, what happened? What did you find? Cool. So I'll start with the same, same um, actually, before I forget it, at XP they said, it's amazing what students achieve when you kind of give them the freedom and lift the lid. And Michaela, Catherine, Verbalsing said, it's amazing what students can achieve when you hold them to a high standard. So it's funny, like almost exactly the same line, just with a different ending. But um, yeah, I, I wanted to go to Michaela because of the, its reputation. And when I say its reputation, I mean both good and bad. Some people who are on Twitter may have seen me put out a tweet a couple of days ago saying, and I'm going to interview Catherine Verbalsing in a couple of days. Uh, what should I ask her? <laughs> and I had... I had over 110 replies. About 25% of them were people just saying nasty stuff like where's the mute button or who hurt her as a child to make her do these things or why doesn't she have a heart and things like that, which, you know, wasn't helpful, but I showed how people feel about this school. Uh, and, and a bunch of that stuff was the the comments were really, really helpful and great, insightful questions, some of which I incorporated into the interview in modified forms. But this school is like just so polarizing. I've learned a new expression here in the UK recently. You call th- I can call it a Marmite school and anything that's a Marmite something is something that people either lo- love or hate. So Michaela is the Marmite school <laughs> essentially and people either, either you know love the strictness, the, the rigor, the standards or they see it as horrendous oppression. So I see my job with the Itrilla podcast and and more broadly as trying to really move past these labels, trad prog, these kind of dichotomies that people paint and and also these assumptions that people have about things and and really just to go and try to see for myself or talk to myself and approach things with an open mind and say, you know, what can be learned from this school, this teacher, this model, this book, this paper, whatever it might be, that I can take and that other educators can take to improve their situation. You know, what can SMLC take from Michaela? What can Michaela take from SMLC, you know, and XP in the middle as well? So that's that's why I headed there. I must say, so this morning I was watching the documentary about Michaela, which recently came out, which is good. It's, it's nice that Michaela's got documentary, you know, I think it's called the the country's strictest headmistress or something like that. And and it's, it was nice. XP's got one as well, above all compassion. And I must say, like watching the documentary, I was getting a bit worried, right? And the the media around Michaela, I was getting a bit worried. I was I was I was saying, oh, I wonder if I'm wearing the right clothes. Am I dressed formally enough? I'm, you know, I'm wearing my Vans. I'll, I'll put trousers on. I'll put my black jeans on, and I'll wear a I'll wear a short sleeve shirt. I've got a blazer. Should I bring the blazer? 
I'm not sure. Am I going to get told off because I'm not not wearing the right clothes? And then, you know, I walked into the office and um, it was completely silent. Like all the, there was, you know, about eight, six teachers behind the receptionist or six people behind the receptionist just like working all in complete silence. And, um, and I was like, oh, this is a bit weird. And the receptionist kind of greeted me and asked for ID, which hadn't happened at any of the other schools and gave me a name tag and t- instructed me to write like Mr. Lovell. Not, I was like, oh, can I, do I have to write Mr. and my surname? And she's like, yes, please. I was like, okay, um, all right. And she said, sit there. And then I had to wait for two minutes. And I was like, I was like, I was like sweating, James. I'm not a nervous guy. I like, I'm not, you know, I haven't been nervous for an interview for a very long time, but I was like, what's going to happen? Like, ah, uh, and it was kind of like the, um, the view or like the, the mystique around Michaela had made me kind of feel like really stressed about going in there. But then I just asked the receptionist, I said, are there rules about like the teachers talking? She laughed at me and she said, no, no, not at all. It's just like, it's just like not usually like this. They're just quiet right now. And sure enough, like five minutes later, they were just all chatting and as you, as you would in a normal staff office. And then anyway, so yeah, came down and, and the, the diff, one of the differences about my interview at Michaela versus the other two schools was Michaela, I did the interview first. So that was the only time that Catherine Burbelsing had to, to do the interview and, and her, her assistant told me, let, let me know that I was very lucky to have an hour with Catherine because most people only get 30 minutes. So that was good. And it, it was obviously hard. She's, you know, she's, I think she was meeting with the, um, she was meeting with the leader of the opposition of New Zealand after me to put it into perspective. Like I bumped into them in the, uh, the reception and I was like, Oh, Hey, Hey mate, was he gone? Oh, you sound like you got a New Zealand accent. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the leader of the opposition or whatever. I was like, oh yeah, cool. <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, so, you know, that's the context and it's a bit of a different one to SMLC and XP as well, although I'm sure XP will have um, dignitaries visiting in not too long if that hasn't happened already. So yeah, the interview was great. I really enjoyed interviewing Catherine. I think she made a lot of sense on a lot of things. I tried to push back on a few things and I think I managed to do that sensitively as 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 I always try to do and I think we made some um covered some good ground yeah and we talked about things like the silent corridors and stuff like that but um it's hard for me to do justice to to that interview I think recounting it I might just let it leave it to speak for itself but you know it was pleasant it was a pleasant nice interaction that I enjoyed and she she seemed reasonable and was able to in almost I'd say pretty much every case justify the decisions they've made and I got a clear understanding of the kind of psyche one of the probably one of the main things that really stuck out to me from that interview was when she, how she talked about how she gets alignment from staff so basically they, they do like professional development like pedagogical professional development is within departments and there's an hour allocated to that every week and then every wednesday afternoon they have like basically like ethos professional development like stuff around social issues poverty you know, sexism, misogyny, stuff like that. And Catherine often is a significant part of that. And then every Thursday afternoon, she has like an hour or 45 minutes or something with, with new staff members. So this is like, if you're a new staff member, if you came in the last year to Michaela, you are every Thursday afternoon with Catherine. And like, that is how they get alignment at that school. And she also talked about the interview process. Like she has an hour with every new staff member she says, bring your questions and tell me everything you feel uncomfortable about about this school or everything you feel excited about but mainly uncomfortable and I will explain to you why we do it that way and you need to decide whether this is the school for you or not. So, like, the commitment to getting that alignment was um, apparent and it's like that's how you do it. 
Like that's that's the time required to get everyone singing from the same hymn sheet in the way that she has. Then went on the student-guided tour. The students were really lovely. It's very, very different vibe from XP, right? So XP, the students are talking about their work. They're like quite outspoken. They seem really proud, things like that. At Michaela, they seemed happy, but like reserved and very like proper, I guess would be a good word for it. They were like calling me sir the whole time and deferring to me, would you like to go here, would you like to go here? You know, it was a bit of a different vibe as to be expected because that's something that's really emphasised. But the thing that really sticks out in Michaela is just the quality of the teaching. Man, it is just on another plane. And I was curious whether the school would allow me to kind of go wherever I want. That was one of the great things about XP. I was really impressed by it. Well, actually, as, and SMLC, until this trip, I've never been in a school where they say, go anywhere you want, right? And at, at SMLC, because they're not an actual school, Ian had to accompany me all the way around, but it was only small anyway, so I got to see anything I wanted. But at XP, they were like literally go everywhere. So while you were chatting to Mel and Alex, I was like spent like two and a half hours just literally walking through every classroom I possibly could to get a sense of the school. And the same with Michaela. I spent an hour and a half today by myself just walking in and out of classrooms. And every classroom I went into, it was phenomenal. Like the focus of the students like the pace of the class, the rapidity of the transitions, it actually it really blew my mind. So you look at quality teaching, you go to any school and you find the best teacher and you're like, wow, this is like amazing. And then you go and see what's happening at Michaela and it's like that, but it's everybody, just like they are all star players. As I went around, there was an incredible amount of like observation of each other. So I would like go into a classroom And then at least 30% of the classrooms I was in, another teacher would walk in and stand there for at least five minutes, sometimes up to 20 minutes, and be watching and writing feedback. So they've just got this constant and relentless commitment to standards and, and holding those high standards, which is, you know, really just gives a picture of what it takes to get that level of consistency. And, um, yeah, participation, you know, teacher, it's like, it's mind-blowing. Like, you should go there, James. You should really go there to check it out. Like, the class norms, the participation norms, like they've got a, a number of ways they want students to engage, like turn and talk, choral response, cold call. They've got, like, a, a whole bunch of them. And when the teacher gives a signal, the students just do it. Turn and talk takes, like, 10 seconds, like, and, you know, 12 seconds between when the teacher gives the signal to turn and talk and when the teacher has the full attention of the whole class. And that students actually talk during that time. Like I sat next to them and they actually, it's not so much a conversation because you can't really have a conversation in 10 seconds, but they're, they're answering the teacher's question to each other and it's a valuable discussion like or a valuable interaction is probably a better way to put it. It's, um, it's just crazy. Mm. It sounds amazing, and um, I definitely would like to like to go and see it. So, so just to pick up on the thing that you said about like like, you, do you say that there was an almost constant culture of staff observing other members of staff and feeding back on it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it was, they were coming in. Like I said, probably at a guess, like thirty percent of the class I went into, another staff member popped their head in at least for a couple of minutes. Yeah, it was constant. And and the teachers, like that that observation is like throughout. So, you know, people talk about silent corridors. 
I was chatting to one teacher and he was like, oh, I've got duty now. You can come with me to duty. And his duty was standing in a stairwell for like the three minutes that they did class transitions, right, just to make sure that all the students were transitioning between classes appropriately. And um, I watched another of those duties and the teacher was like literally working as a conductor like because the students work walk in like really structured class lines and the teacher would be like Poseidon wait there I don't know whatever other Achilles I don't know what they were called you go and was like like a police officer at the traffic lights like with the hand signals and it's just like clockwork it's it's mind-boggling stuff and and again did you feel that did you have an emotional response to that because that's one of those hot button issues isn't it that so for some people they think oh that's amazing those kids are so well behaved and for other people they're like that's like the nazi youth and we're just programming them to be like little drones like it's a it's a it's a thing that some people find very triggering how did you find that when you as you were watching that what was the sense that you had i think something that's helped me to have the view towards education that i do which which apparently seems baffling to some people how i can like go to SMLC and go, oh, this seems really good, and then go to McKellar and go, oh, this seems really good, is I read a book in like my early 20s by Sam Harris called The Moral Landscape. And the main premise of The Moral Landscape is often we think about morality as a mountain, right? And and the uh, the goal is to climb the mountain of morality and be at the top and be really whatever it is to be moral, right? You know, care about others, give to charity, whatever it might be. And we look at societies that are, exist within different paradigms from our own and we don't understand why they do that or that or that and we think that's stupid or it's immoral or whatever or different religions. But the whole idea of the moral landscape is that, well, actually it's a landscape. There are many mountains that hold value or can be seen as moral and there are you know, different heights you can achieve on those different mountains. It's hard to be on any two mountains at the same time, but if someone else is on a different mountain, it doesn't mean they're immoral. They might just be climbing a different mountain to yourself, right? And so this is my view of education, right? It's like the the the, the moral landscape or the pedagogical landscape or whatever you want to call about it of education. There are these peaks that you can achieve. For what Michaela is trying to do, it does it phenomenally well, right? For what SMLC is trying to do in terms of giving students complete freedom, it does it phenomenally well. And I think that it's great that these places exist because then when parents want to send their kids to somewhere where they're literally going to learn so much stuff, they send them to Michaela. So, you know, did I feel weird to come back to your question? The main thing I felt weird was like, I mean, like, yeah, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird. It's a bit different. The, the probably the thing I felt most weird about was like how the students will say like, good morning, sir, or good afternoon, sir. So they like look at me and, good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. And when there's like 50 of them going past you like that, it's just a bit like disorientating, you know, it's just like a bit much. And I was like, okay, but you know, they were really polite. At some point we can talk about the, um, the kind of lunch to my, to my other stuff I saw like at lunchtime and stuff, which was, I think really worth commenting on as well. When you want to go there, like it's different, it's different, but it's just a different normal. And I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with the normal that they've created at Michaela. It is like 100% it's based around observation, control, things like that. And if a kid didn't want to be there, like I don't think they should have to be there if they don't want to be. But if a child wants to be there and their parents support them to be there, then I think it's a pretty good learning opportunity for them. Right, thank you. And so, so did you observe any sort of instances of teachers responding to instances of misbehavior or non-compliance like my understanding i mean it's like 
I don't know. My, my understanding of Michaela is that they have high volume detentions daily or weekly that for, for minor infractions of the uniform policy or for not having the spare pen, for example. And it's, it's, I'm trying to sort of square that because you sound, it sounds like you're, you're describing it. Almost, it sounds like the word machine like comes to mind, like a, a 50 kids filing past and all saying, hello, sir, hello, sir, hello, sir. It's like you're in a human made machine and the mechanical way in which you were describing them as, as marching in single file in silence to lessons and so on. And yet it seems like there's, there's this high volume detention thing going on at the same time. I'm just trying to square those two things. Did you see any any instances of that? Can you shed any light on that? Yeah. So, I mean, on the way into the school, I bumped into Michaela boys, which was helpful because I didn't know where I was going. I said, hi, boys, you go to Michaela. I probably said gents. I like calling them boys. Gentlemen, are you going to Michaela? I said, yes, can you show me the way? And I said, oh, you guys, like, hasn't school started already? Yes. Does that mean you're going to be late? Yes. And one of the boys said, oh, I'm not going to be late because I'm, um, I'm in isolation today. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? He said, oh, I, you know, I've been in a room by myself or I don't go to classes. I said, why is that? He said, it's, it's because I skipped a class yesterday. I said, oh, why did you skip a class? He said, oh, well, they were doing a revision lesson and I knew that I'd, I'd already not, knew it already, but, but I, I thought I'd probably get caught anyway and I did and it was a bad decision and now I'm facing the consequences. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And I was like, how do you feel about that? He's like, oh, well, that's fair. I was like, okay. And the other boy, he was like, yeah, I've got a detention today. It's like, why is that? He said, oh, I dropped my pen in class yesterday. It was just an accident, but I got a detention anyway. And I said, how do you feel about that? And he said, oh, it sucks because, you know, I can't go home and like relax. I have to stay at school to like 4.30 instead of three or whatever it was. And I said, is there anything you want to change about, you'd want to change about the school? And the, sec- the first boy said, not really. And the second boy said, yeah, sometimes the rules are a bit too strict, you know, like getting a detention because I dropped my pen. I spoke to a lot of students about it and, you know, they've bought in. They, I mean, whether you want to say bought in or brainwashed, I don't know. Some people would call it brainwashed and some would call it bought in. But they share the belief that you don't achieve the standards. And this is something I'd be curious to explore more. The belief is you don't achieve the standards of behavior that you have at Michaela without having the kind of repercussions that they have. So, yeah, a question for me is can you get the kind of pace in lessons? Can you get the kind of participation? Can you get the kind of focus in lessons that Michaela has without having that level of regimentation and that level of what some people would call pettiness around rules? And it's kind of something I asked Catherine. I said, like, how do you know you've got the right number of rules? And she talked about adaptation and iteration over time, which I think made a lot of sense. But for me, the question is, can you reach that level of focus or a similar level of focus with, with, with fewer rules? I don't actually know the answer to that question. It is my gut instinct that you probably could, but it's Catherine's gut instinct that you can't. And she constantly invoked the kind of slippery slope argument whereby if we let this standard slip, then it's all like a cascading fall into anarchy, which may be true. You know, I've never seen another school as, as work like clockwork, like Michaela does. And I've never seen a school as, as strict. Maybe they go together. Maybe they don't have to. Yeah. And she does say, doesn't she, that you don't need to have strict corridors in every school. And she's not suggesting that you should, but she says, so so this also is a non-selective school. Uh, It's in a inner city, London. So, you know, dealing with kids with 
difficult backgrounds and difficult socioeconomic uh, circumstances and what have you. And so I think that maybe they see it as, I, I don't know if you'd want to express it in these words, but like it's a price worth paying, right? So that you have these these very, very super strict, like the broken windows approach to behavior management, right? Like, so if you're, if you're drawing the line at like dropping a pen on the floor, then you're not having a conversation about smoking weed in the toilets or about throwing chairs around because you just, you've just drawn the line at dropping a pen. And that, that that's a price that you pay, right? And it's an investment that the school has to make in enforcing that line, which, you know, some people I imagine even at the school would find difficult, you know, imagine that, you know, those conversations when people are coming to Catherine as they, as they seek to join the school and they're saying, what are your reservations? I imagine that lots of the conversation is around that and how strict it is. And I guess she's, she's arguing the case and saying you can't have that level of participation and pace and so on without that level is the, that's the price that you pay. And it seems, that seems like instinctively that seems to me to be about right. Like the, the way of the world is that it, like it sort of has this amazing way of, of balancing and rebalancing itself. Right. And what the universe gives with one hand, it sort of takes away with the other and everything comes with a price. It's like some mad like fairy tale. And so that's interesting. And the way that you described it as the moral landscape the Sam Harris book, I know that, that that's quite similar to the arguments that are made in The Righteous Mind, which I know that, I've, I think I've seen Catherine Burblesing say before that, that they read that book widely at the school and that the strapline of The Righteous Mind is something like why good people are divided by religion and politics. And it's essentially saying that people on the left and people on the right have a different moral palette if you like they have different moral taste buds and they're activated by different things and that doesn't mean that they're immoral people although you know in the in this very polarized divided world that we live in the people on the left think that the people on the right are the enemies of, of everything and that attitude goes in both directions and we just have this very entrenched system and, and it seems that they are quite open-minded on that front and they're saying you know like we like we, we want we've got the same goals we want we've got high expectations for these kids we want them to achieve extraordinary things and go into top universities and the price that we pay along the way is all of this coercion and control and punishment and what have you fascinating and so tell me about lunchtime yeah so lunchtime is split into two there's like a, a first lunch and a second lunch and this is just so that because they don't have enough space for all students to eat at the same time basically i don't think so the Today was like they had a sack race, right? So I, I I attended second lunch, which means I was in the yard first lunch, during first lunch, and there was a sack race. And these kids were like a kid from each year level, uh, from each like school group or whatever it was, house raced. And the kids were yelling and the teachers were like smiling and they were like videoing it. And there was like shit, competitions for which group could yell the loudest and the kids were like hopping along in their sacks and like it was just awesome it was like you'd seen a standard school definitely ran a bit more smoothly than i've seen it run that kind of thing run at other schools like it was a bit like clockwork anyway but it was like the usual joyful kind of playground stuff that you that you'd see and i during that lunch period i managed to speak to a couple of students in like year 12 or something like that like older students the older students don't need to wear uniforms they just wear like smart professional dress i think is what they called it and they were talking about how much they loved the school, how grateful they were that they came there. I was speaking with one girl in particular. She'd just come. She didn't come from 7 to 10. She came year 11 and she was just said she came because she wanted the strictness. She wanted the high-quality instruction and she said she could just never imagine going back to how bad the instruction was at her old school and how uninvested the students were in their learning and things like that. She was just absolutely beaming. 
And, you know, every student I spoke to at Michaela seemed pretty excited and proud to be part of the school. There was this other student I spoke to, he said he'd been there for a while, he was talking about how he was really into maths and um, when I said to him, is there anything you'd change? Oh, for her, I think I said, is there anything you'd change about the school? She said the food. And then um, for the next boy, I said, anything you'd change about the school? And he said, probably just one one rule, which is like at lunchtime, it's only groups of four, like you're not allowed to stand in groups of more than four. I've heard that. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. He said that sucks because I've got more than, you know, three friends that I want to talk to at lunchtime but we're not allowed to. So I think that's um, that's about like people, it's like about stopping bullying, stopping intimidation, stuff like that. Look, to me that seems like a bit of an excessive rule but who, who knows, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe you actually need that. I doubt it but maybe I'm wrong. And then I went into lunch break. Yeah, go James. Oh, no, I was just going to come back on some of the things that you just said. Like, like yeah, let's do this and then we'll... So, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, that thing about, like, not assembling in groups of more than four, and it just immediately calls to mind the criminal justice bill that was introduced in this country a few years ago, which was about, like, you're not allowed to assemble in groups of... I don't know what the figure was, but it was their way of breaking up illegal raves, right, that were happening at weekends. And so, that I mean, that does sound excessive, but obviously they've got reasons for it. And, and like you say, I think that it comes from a good place. I think that they, they think that it comes from a from a from a place like you mentioned bullying i've heard people say before there's no bullying at michaela because there's no opportunity to bully because everything is supervised even as you described like this this joyful sack race you were saying even that sort of ran like clockwork and and but it was adult supervised and the adults were even supervising you know like yeah let's make noise but it's like adults are allowing that level of noise and like the, the most recent podcast that i released was with peter gray he was talking about the, what the need for unsupervised play right that, that that's a really important part of childhood that you need to learn how to how to stand on your own two feet really and 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 i guess that he would argue that the the cut and thrust of the playground and learning how to deal with bullies for example is an important part of the skill set of growing up and that isn't like the kids at Michaela wouldn't be learning those things because there's no opportunity for those things to be had. And, and there's a question, I guess, about whether suppressing those those behaviours for kids to sort of to rub up against each other as an inevitable aspect of the hormonal changes and friendship issues and betrayals and all of that sort of stuff that seems to happen in the ages of sort of 11 to 14 or 15. That's a quite a normal part of growing up. And that stuff happens at SMLC a lot as well. And in every school that I've worked in, and that's a really important part of of life. It seems like, in the name of not allowing bullying and in the name of academic excellence, those things are like the, the environment of Michaela is controlled to such an extent that those things cannot happen. That, that that's an interesting question, isn't it? And these things are, are, are intangible. To what extent is that price paid elsewhere? Like, what? Well, how do the kids behave when they're not in Michaela school? I, I, I used to work at a school where it was a normal secondary school and they had this, the, the, there was a year seven form tutor who was like a character out of Dickens. He had like these big sideburns that came down to the bottom of his chin and he wore a tweed coat and he, like, I can't remember his name. And he was terrifying. He was absolutely terrifying, shouted, big red face, like just put up with nothing like if a kid looked at another kid during tutor time he'd have them facing the wall with their nose an inch from the wall for the rest of the thing and that class was horrendous to teach like everybody dreaded seeing them appear on your timetable and i think there was a general consensus that those two things were linked right that they, they were so sort of suppressed and squashed down during those 15 minutes of tutor time in the morning that they just sort of went a bit berserk when that when those 
those constraints weren't placed on them. And so that, there's a, that, that, that question works in two ways with, with the questions that I have about Michaela. Number one, how are those kids behaving outside of school like on a day-to-day basis? And secondly, on a more long-term basis, like to what extent are those kids enabled to, to succeed in life when there isn't going to be a teacher that's going to micromanage them at every step of the way once they leave the school? Like how well are they being set up? Even although in the short term, like you say, they get these astonishing results. Again, the universe finds finds a way to take with one hand and give with the other. Is there a price that's being paid there in terms of how how prepared those kids are for a life where they're not going to have that level of of control and micromanagement? Yeah, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. So maybe maybe XP sends students to uni or into the world with more self regulated learning skills but less knowledge. Right, that's got its benefits and disadvantages. Maybe Michaela sends it to them with less self-regulated learning skills, but more knowledge. Maybe that's better or worse. Depends on the context, probably. Maybe here's another hypothesis. So something Naomi Fisher was talk, talks about is just like the development that young people go through simply by growing up. Right, like so often we attribute. I think it was her. I, I'm sorry, Naomi, if I'm attributing this to the wrong person, but often we attribute the fact that maybe it was. Peter Graven, that kids go to school in kinder and they're kind of like these crazy little things running around and by the time they're teenagers they can like sit quietly for hours. And often we attribute that to the fact that they went to school so they got trained to sit quietly. But actually maybe that's just development, right? Maybe just people get better at sitting quietly as they get older, which is probably pretty true. And so maybe the same thing of this like emotional teenage years becoming more stable, becoming more mature thing. Maybe that happens through this ability to naturally play and deal with playground challenges in your own way and therefore, you know, controlling in the way that Michaela does inhibits that and people come out less mature in those um, that emotional sense. Or maybe it's just a thing that happens through natural development and controlling them through those years just means they don't have to go through that turmoil of, of teenage-ness. I don't actually know. Again hypotheses shall i continue with the lunch narrative please do yeah so then i went to second lunch and so they blow a whistle students line up and then they march into the lunch hall on the way into the lunch hall there will be a teacher who's leading that lunch and this guy is like a scottish guy and he said today the poem we're doing is invictus so they're doing invictus and then, and then he basically shouted like the first word of the first line of the poem, Invictus, and the students responded. And then he shouted the sec- first word of the second line and the students responded. And they, re- re- they recited this whole poem with actions as they were entering the dining room. And, you know, this is the thing where people get up in arms about, about um, poetry being chanted or whatever. Honestly, I welled up at XP. I welled up at Michaela when the kids were chanting poetry. I actually found it a really powerful experience. Like I love poetry and I think that students like poetry and having the lines from poetry at your disposal throughout life, like many times they're like wisdom, wisdom codified into like punchy, often rhyming schemes. Right. And if you're struggling and you're like, I'm the captain of my fate, I'm the master of my soul, which I believe is a couple of lines from the end of Invictus that they were saying today, haven't memorized that one yet. I'll work on it. I think that's super powerful. And I know that these kids are going to actually have that at their disposal for the rest of their lives because they're drilling it into them. And it's going to be infused with this sense of camaraderie that they were saying it together and linked back to this, their time at Michaela that was a incredibly empowering time for, for many of them. Maybe it was a disempowering time for some of them, but I 
the sense I got from talking to them was a really empowering time. And so that was just awesome. I loved it. So they do that. After that, straight after that, the teacher leading will defer to a few teachers and they'll award merits to students for how well they recited the poetry. So like every student is always being observed and on on show. And so there's like merits given out. Then the students sit down and then the teacher gave an address. So every lunchtime there's like a topic for them to talk about. So today the teacher started to tell a story about how he went down to the cellar with his brothers at their old house and they heard a scratch and they were wondering what it was and I thought it was a ghost, blah, 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 blah. And then he stopped the story. He said, I'll tell you how the story ended after lunch. And he said, the topic of today's discussion is do you believe in dragons, ghosts, mermaids? And he said, I really hope the mermaids exist, but I'm not sure if they do. And then blah, 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 these other things. And do you have any stories you can share about spooky experiences? And so I was sat with these group of students. They must have been year seven or eight, quite young. I was with six of them. And they just jumped straight into it, just jumped into like a very great conversation, very uninhibited. They were very like free speaking, very appropriate about spooky stories. And it was just amazing. Like they just, it was just like a lovely, pleasant lunchtime conversation on a really interesting topic. They asked me what I thought about them and if I believed in them. They also asked me where I was from, how long I'd traveled for, things like that. It was great. And, you know, during there, there was like a break. One of the students went and got all the food, brought it back. And then they had a break again. The teacher told the end of the story. Turns out it was his cat that was scratching, which added to the reason why he hates cats still to this day because they scared him. And then the next thing was, okay, now you practice your appreciations because we're going to do them soon. We went back to eating again. Something that crept up on me was the fact that um, they, they only have like 20 minutes to eat. So I was just like slowly eating and chatting. And then like, it was like, okay, time to pack up your food now. Um, and so they, then they took away all the food. And so that was interesting, but the kids didn't seem fussed about that because they were used to it. And during this time, the students practiced appreciations and they actually practiced it. Like, this is the funny thing. Like, you know, often in schools, teachers will say, do this, practice this thing, talk about this topic, blah, blah, blah. Kids just sit around and chat about something else. And Michaela, they just do the thing. <laughs> so they practice their appreciations and appreciation goes like this. I'd like to show my appreciation for James because he was a great travel partner and very considerate and flexible and we had a great time together. Two claps for James on two, one, two. And so they just practice that. And, and on my table, some of the students practiced the same appreciation like three times because they knew they might get called on. And so then they cleared away the food and then they said, okay, time for appreciations. Hands up if you want to share an appreciation. Literally every student in the whole hall puts their hand up like, everybody it's like 200 kids in this hall and the teacher will just pick a student and they stand up and they share their appreciation and then everyone claps and then they pick another one and the students are like awarded merits for appreciations like one two or three depending upon how much how well they've projected things like that yeah it was it was good i mean my favorite part of all that was just like the opportunity to chat with the kids and to see them kind of responsibly engage in conversation because I don't know about you, James, but there's a lot of times I've been at a social function with a teenager and they just kind of don't know how to talk to an adult. But both at XP and at Michaela, I got the set, like the young people were really happy to chat with me, much more so than I've experienced in many other schools. So there's something that's happening in both those schools um, that's great about that. And then that was pretty much the lunch experience. Mm. 
fascinating. And so, I mean, the thing that's really coming out strongly is the similarities, the, the, the language of appreciations, for example, that they use literally the same thing at XP. And it would be nice to have seen the appreciations at XP to, to compare and contrast. Again, it seems it's like very adult supervised like it sounds it sounds lovely what you're describing but it's even down to the topic that you're allowed to discuss at lunch as fun a topic as the you know spooky stuff and ghosts and and kids love talking about that in my my experience as well again really adult adult led but also like yeah the, the the emphasis in both those schools on developing confidence in public speaking just to go back quickly to xp if i may because we didn't mention this earlier but two of the fo- two of the features at that school one of them being a, a regular i don't know if it's annual or termly instead of having a parents evening they have a student-led committee conference yeah sorry thank you conference yes yeah, thank you the, their parents come in and they present their learning to their parents and to their crew leader and to maybe some teachers about what they've been up to recently and that that comes across that's one of those moments that really gets you in the chest when you watch the xp film is like watching the pride that some father feels as he looks at his kid and he sees what he can do now and the other thing that they have at xp is that they have their pols presentations of learning where every kid in every year group is expected to do a presentation to a room full of adults every term like three times a year throughout so they'll do that 15 times to at least 15 times i think that the, 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 the student ambassador that we talked about said that she had to do two or three pols in the like in the next term or something and so they might well practice that even more and she talked about having been really quiet and lacking confidence when she came to that school and now she felt like she'd found her voice and she was able to have very you know yeah to, to code switch and to have age appropriate conversations with with groups of adults and what have you and she felt really proud of that and I'm, that's the sense that i'm getting from xp that through this through practicing like here's how to have a good conversation with people they don't really talk about oracy explicitly at Bikela, as we think that they would characterize it as sort of like generic you know like group work and that it's all sort of messy and fluffy and woolly but there's clearly a lots of emphasis placed on on spoken language and communication and really, the, the common thing, I think we're sort of almost like spreading out now into looking at, across the piece, but in all of these three organizations, we're talking about developing character in very different ways, but taking the development of character very seriously alongside knowledge. And that's coming through very strongly in, in everything that you're saying here. And so like, with one eye on the clock, let, should, should we sort of, have you got anything to add on Michaela before we do a, a kind of a wrapping up? I guess probably just the comment that like, you don't know what the phrase high standards means until you've seen Michaela, or at least speaking for myself, I didn't think it could look like that. Like I didn't know students could be that engaged or compliant, depending upon which word you want to use to describe it. Like it really, really blew my mind. The supervision thing is like a bit weird and like I wonder to what extent like fear is an ingredient in this whole process is that a bad thing? I mean, many religions for, <laughs> that have been the foundation of our society for years are based around fear. Uh, lots of people reject that these days, but lots of people still choose to be involved in them. So, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's the moral landscape, James. It's, uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was really an uplifting experience to visit Michaela. Some things were scary, and I can say the same about both other schools. Yeah, yeah. And and so, I mean, you make a really compelling case for each of these three schools that, that like, couldn't be further apart 
on the spectrum, right? SMLC at one end, XP in the middle, but in terms of mainstream schooling, it's at the far end of the spectrum on, on the other end from Michaela. And it seems to me that like they're all outliers in some sense. Like none of these organizations are typical. You know, the reason that you've chosen those three is because they're sort of notorious because they're so different to what's normally happening. And it seems to me that there's it's very clear that there's an incredible amount of like love of children, compassion for, for young people, for the circumstances that they face, a really strong moral imperative to do what's best by them. But like you say, the moral landscape means that that, that that looks different for different people. And it's very clear that some people really love Michaela. Like you say, it's a Marmite, it's a Marmite issue and many issues within it, like, like silent corridors or chanting poetry, are sort of mini little hot button issues for lots of people. It really divides people in a gut, in an instinctual level. Like I have the opposite experience to you. When I see kids chanting poetry, my head says, oh, that's good. They're learning poetry and they'll remember that for the rest of life. But my gut, there's something that just, it just presses my buttons in a, in a different way to how it does with you. And that's fine. <laughs> like, because like we should embrace diversity. And so to my mind, I think it seems like there's a case that we would have an educational landscape where at the moment, there's one SMLC in this country. There's one XP or there's one XP trust with a small number of schools. There's two Michaelas now, isn't there? Because there's a primary school, and there are others. There are like there, there are other schools that are very close to, to Michaela that don't have quite the, the media profile that Michaela does. But it seems like there's immense value in each of these organisations, and that we should maybe think about diversifying the system so that there's one of these in every locality, right? So that parents, young people, parents and carers teachers and, and leaders who also are triggered in different ways by different types of, of learning organizations are able to vote with their feet, right? And at the moment, we don't have that. Like at the moment, these outliers are outliers. I think the big question is how can we get to a much more diverse educational ecosystem where people can choose from, from across that spectrum and also bringing places like SMLC, democratic learning communities, into the state-funded sector because it's not fair that, that that's only available for kids who can afford it or who can you know qualify for the hardship criteria and it's in such small numbers so that's for me that's where where this is pointing but i'm also aware that i've i've sort of thought that for a long time and this is just confirming my my pre-existing biases what are your thoughts what what are your takeaways having having taken in this incredible journey all within the space of the last week mm. yeah i was just thinking while you're chatting then i was, I was wondering it's often about like initial experiences as well. Like I think if we took some year nine students from Michaela to XP, let them be there for a week and said, do you want to stay at Michaela? Do you want to come here? I think a lot of them would be happy to stay at Michaela. And I think the other way around, if we took some year nine students from XP to Michaela and said, stay here for a week, do you want to go back? Like I think a lot of them would go, oh, no, this isn't, this isn't what education should look like. I want to say it XP. So it's just like an interesting thing where there's like a like an effective. It's just habituation as well, you know. It's uh, like religions and and lots of things. But I guess I guess my again coming back to like the the kind of school I'd like to send my own student kids to. Keeping in mind my my level of privilege and what I would expect them to get from home anyway. It would probably be a, like a mix of all three. Really, it would have the crew. It would have the expeditionary learning. It would have rigor of classroom instruction. It would have 
the chanting of poetry <laughs> and it would have self-directed <laughs> it would have self-directed projects i don't know who's going to start this school i don't know how the heck you'd make it happen but i'm just glad there's people in the world that have the level of conviction that Catherine and andy and Gwyn and ian have to actually put in the friggin' hard effort to turn these these speculations of us as us uh couch philosophers into reality because it's it's just a massive privilege to be able to visit the, all these great institutions and and take hopefully be able to take the best of each to improve schools right across the board mm, yeah and, and what's fascinating is it's like so both Michaela and XP are free schools and so for international listeners so in this country, we recently had this program of academization where schools can stop being controlled by the local authority and can either become a standalone academy or part of a multi-academy trust where they're accountable to the Department for Education rather than to this middle tier of like local government. The idea being that they get more budget that way that they can then spend and they can save money through economies of scale by joining multi-academy trusts and what have you. And then a free school is basically an academy that just didn't exist before. So it's a new school that comes into being and both Michaela and XP are free schools and that's of interest because they both started with year seven and year eight and year nine and they both were able to recruit people to get behind a particular vision a very singular vision of those leaders very strong leaders with a strong moral imperative and so on as you just described and that's a lot easier to 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 build that culture than it is to do it if you were, if you're going to try to convert a pre-existing school and where where pre-existing schools have tried to be converted into a Michaela like school there's huge fallout there's like hundreds of kids being excluded and like loads of really bad articles in the press and so on like it's a lot harder to implement at scale given the schools that we currently have so it's it's hard to see how we get to this more diverse educational ecosystem or like you say, you know, like maybe it's, maybe it's not the case. Maybe, maybe we're thinking about this wrongly. Maybe it's not the case that you have a Michaela and an XP and an SMLC in every community. But like you say, that, that, that all existing schools could incorporate aspects of crew, aspects of Michaela, aspects of expeditionary learning and self-directed learning and figure out how to make that heady cocktail work in a way that's like the best of all worlds. Yeah, I mean that's the holy grail, right? But that's hard. Like, there's because there's all like you said, what the what the universe giveth, the universe taketh away, or like it gives with one hand, takes with the other. Like, it's kind of like trying to balance your life, right? Like, I want to be all over education. I want to be able to speak multiple foreign languages. I want to be like super fit. I want to like meditate heaps. I want to have great relationship with my partner and be a great father when I have kids and have a great relationship with my family. Like there's like, I want to have like lots of holidays. I want to like surf lots. There's like so much stuff that I want to do in my life, but like you just can't be everything. There just isn't enough time in the day and you just can't balance all the priorities. Like I don't know, some, maybe some people can, but it's pretty hard to see. The CEOs have the families that break down, the people that have great family lives often aren't CEOs. Or like, you know, it's just so hard to balance. Maybe it's not possible. I don't know. But if it is possible, <laughs> we should be striving towards it. Yeah, and, and maybe maybe some of these things are sort of like so ideologically opposed that like that it's not possible to squish together two peaks from the moral landscape 
in the same school, that just might not work. I mean, it, I had a really interesting conversation with Patrick Wibley, who is a is a, a school leader I've worked with on and off over the years for a long time. Really interesting guy, and he was obsessed with Michaela, and also became really obsessed with SMLC when I had Ian Cunningham on the podcast, and he started to sketch out a timetable. And he was like, so here's how you could do that. So you could just have like three periods of self-directed learning dotted around throughout the school week so that you could have, you know, you could start to create a patchwork model of these different ideas and make them work in a single organization. Who knows, man? Maybe it is possible. That's, that has certainly never been tried. It would be a fascinating thing to try to do. We'll keep striving. Uh, at least I'm pretty sure I couldn't help run a school like that and learn foreign languages and do lots of surfing and do things, et etc. Et et <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's hard to balance it all. Not all in, not all in one day. Not all in one day. But yeah, I think, I think to me, that's the kind of thing we should be striving towards. So as you know, on the Rethinking Education podcast, we like to get to know the guests a little bit, as well as hearing what they think about things. I would like to know who you are and why are you the person that you are. One way that I often start with that is what was your experience of school like? What were you like as a student? What kind of school did you go to? What was your childhood like and your subsequent education? Cool. Big question. I went to the Friends School in Hobart, Tasmania. Friends School is a Quaker school. I went to the Friends School because it's the only private co-ed school in Hobart and it gets the best results. And my parents wanted me to have a good education. And so that seemed like the, the, the best option that they were able to afford and within the vicinity. I went for there from kindergarten to year 12. And I have very few negative memories from school. It was an overwhelmingly positive experience. It's just great, really empowering. I was able to do lots of different activities, service activities, overseas trips, record a, record a high school band album, which people can hear a little bit of on the, the Lynn Stone podcast if they want to. You know, it was just a really, really rich experience. My experience with teachers was great. I really enjoyed maths and science subjects, mainly because I was good at them. I guess probably the only reservation I have about my schooling experience, and this is something I've talked to you about already, James, is the fact that like clearly I'm very interested in language and languages or but but writing you know i've written written two books now and and i'm really interested in poetry and things like that but um that wasn't something that was nurtured in any way at school i hated english until year 11 or 12 when i finally had a teacher who who saw something in me and gave me the time of day whereas before that like i was just you know i was getting an a and everything else but i was only getting b's in english and that told me that i wasn't good at writing and so i'm wondering like was there something in that that about the way that English was approached or the specific teachers they had or what it was, that meant that I wasn't able to realise and start to build a little bit earlier those skills within English. So that's probably the only thing that upon reflection didn't enjoy quite so much or, or didn't quite, wasn't able to reach my potential within, within school time. Yeah, and then I've, so that was, that was school. What else would you like me to address? And then your, that later, so your later educational experience. Yeah, so... From there, I went on to combine degree in physics and economics, which was good, very hard, almost dropped out of physics in second year because it was just really hard, but managed to, managed to hold on. I started to run 
it's called peer assisted study session. So when I was in second year physics, I was running like instructional sessions for first year students. That was because even though I said I, physics was really hard, I almost dropped out. I also got sufficiently high marks to, to be awarded that role within the university. And, you know, at that point I just realized that I actually really love doing this teaching thing at the same time as I realized I'd been tutoring since I was in year 10, been tutoring one-on-one with maths. And from there I went on to running being like a relief lecturer at the uni in the maths bridging course and a tutor in their maths bridging course. really enjoyed that. And so sometime around my fourth year of uni, I decided I want to be a teacher. And I also around the same time started learning Mandarin Chinese, which was one of the most formative kind of experiences for me because that was really my first focused self-directed learning project. And I learned a lot about learning, about working memory and all that kind of stuff. That's when I read Daniel Willingham's book, Why Don't Students Like School? I was in uni myself and had my mind open to kind of all the stuff that laid the foundations for my book on cognitive load theory about five or six years, seven years later. And uni was really positive time as well. I, I actually, I every year except for first year uni, I did part-time and that's because I was really focused on environmental activism at the same time. So we talked a bit about that as well the other day, James. I was into my, into my radical climate change-y stuff which I still think is super important, but um, don't dedicate much time to these days because I'm more focused on education. Yeah, and then I went and did my Master of Teaching at Melbourne Uni, which I really enjoyed. I mean, looking back, there's probably a few things that they could have taught differently that I think I would have got more value out of, but at the time I really enjoyed it and I was grateful to have Catherine Scott in particular as a lecturer and she's been a great support and critical friend right throughout as well. And then, yeah, in my first or second year of teaching, I started the E2Blood podcast, which again has been, well, it's very much a self-directed learning project and has been the richest source of professional development for me and one of the richest sources of friendships, the source of our friendship, James, and the source of my friendship with Peps, who I stayed with in um, Brighton recently, and the, the source of my PhD supervisor and, yeah, just an incredibly empowering learning project, I guess, more than anything. Yeah, me too, man, and I think that you you're – your podcast was a big a big inspiration between me wanting to start this one and it is definitely the best professional development that you could wish for and lots of people lots of listeners also say that they often say things like it's like doing a master's listening to this podcast because both of us do in-depth very in-depth conversations that go in yeah go in deep and and with really wide range of, of guests and we've shared lots of guests from across the full gamut we both had like Naomi and 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 Peter Gray and Ian Cunningham on as well as you know really traditionalist people oh yeah and to, to add to that today Catherine Berbelsing was like so why do you do this podcast and I was like how else would I get an hour with Catherine Berbelsing you know it's like me first and the leader of the opposition in New Zealand next <laughs> like getting an hour that's that's crazy and like you know this is like the ticket to it and so it's an absolute privilege and um and it's awesome we're able to share the conversations more widely as well Absolutely. I might edit this bit out because otherwise people will realise that this is how and there'll, there'll be too much competition. <laughs> yeah, I think there's already enough competition. <laughs> Everyone's starting a podcast these days, yeah. Everyone's got a podcast. It's really interesting, going back to what you were saying about how, how your school didn't nurture that artistic side of yourself. I had the same sort of a similar experience where I was like much more inclined towards the arts and humanities. And I was sort of like the school and system careers advice that I received sort of steered me hard in the, in the direction of science. And it was, and I felt that divide throughout my life, really, this sort of this sense of, of bifurcation that, that the school system sort of funnels you in one direction. And actually there's so much interesting stuff in the world. And I was just, I don't know if you've seen this article, Ryan Campbell sent me this article this morning 
which is absolutely fascinating about this this mathematician. Have you heard of him called a guy called Jun Ho, Jun Hu rather H U H, who's um, from Korea. This this article was just published yesterday. The headline is he dropped out to become a poet. Now he's just won a Fields Medal. And so it's a, the story. Of this guy he's, he's still a youngish guy in his thirties who hated school. It it says here, school was excruciating for him. He loved to learn, but couldn't focus or absorb anything in a classroom setting. Instead, he says he preferred to read on his own. He read the encyclopedia on his own, something that uh, Elon Musk did, among other people, and became an explorer and was keen to just explore the area around his family family home. And whenever his father tried to teach him maths, out of a workbook, he would just copy out the solutions out of the back page, and his dad tore the page page out, and so he just went to a local bookstore and copied out the solutions to the maths problems there, so he'd have them to hand. And he came to maths really late in his life, and it was only through this like very unusual teacher that he had, like when he was like late twenties or something, that he realised that he was this is ridiculously talented mathematician. And it seems that 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 for all of the, I think the reason I'm trying to say this is that the, for all of this sort of the emphasis on subject specialism that we have in schools, that that when it somehow doesn't work very well as a way of helping people to find what it is that they're really good at. And I think it's just the rigidity of the system. It's no, we're not intelligent or adaptive enough. We don't allow people to drop a subject and then pick it up later. And so it seems that, that the system isn't really working as a way of getting people to where they need to be in life. You know, like it's just not working. And it seems that that was the case for you as well. Mm. Yeah. Something else has just come to mind. It's kind of a little bit back back to the other topics, but I think there's probably something to be said around like the curriculum and what's taught in schools. And this was something I talked with Gwyn Apari of XP about a fair bit. Like when we, and it relates to what you were just saying about people not being able to find really what's what works for them or whatever. Like we try to cover so much in school and the the view is like create a broad foundation so that then people can find out what they like and then go on to specialise in those things later on. But I really do wonder the extent to which that's like the best goal in school, especially in like, I mean, I think generally primary school foundations are crucial. Like you've got to read, you've got to write. It's great to know a bit of history, but like probably like the majority of the history that people retain is probably the history they learned, the kind of simple level stuff they learned in primary school. I know for me, like I, I left school basically not knowing anything about the world, like history, didn't know it, didn't remember it, didn't know where countries were. You know, I just didn't retain any of that stuff. Like science stuff, like I, I was asked if I wanted to take over like a year nine science class the other day and I couldn't remember anything about the genetic stuff. I looked at the curriculum and I was like, I don't remember any of this genetic stuff. I believe I covered it, but like bugger if I know. But if I wanted to know that, if I wanted to pursue like a, degree in genetics right now i have no doubt i could learn it pretty quickly and efficiently and so it is a question like we talk about efficiency like mikhail is great at efficiency and getting students to achieve these marks and stuff but i think there is a bigger question we need to ask i think society is a long way away from asking it which is why it's a bit of a dangerous question at present but i think it's worth asking like what should we be teaching or what should we be providing students with opportunities to learn at school and to what extent is making trying to make sure that every year nine stu- student can do soccer toa or can balance a chemical equation or whatever it might be, you know, to what extent is that actually an effective use of time? To me, that's a very important question for us to ask, but also one that not a lot of people want to want to talk about. James? 
Yeah, and I and I think like so in your in your conversation, I think it was your conversation with Harry Fletcher Wood from memory, but it might not be. You talked about self-regulated learning as being like the holy grail of education. And like if we can if if that is the knowledge that we want kids to take away, the knowledge of self, the knowledge of how learning happens, the knowledge of things like cognitive load theory and space practice, as well as you know, self-regulation of emotions and meditation and you know, heart rate variability and breathing techniques and all these techniques and the things that journaling, you know, and exercise and diet and all of the stuff that really, really high achieving people in whatever field they're in spend lots of time focusing on, you know, like how to be an effective human being. To my mind, that's the, that's the Holy Grail. And, and, you know, like I know that it's, it's, it's that hot button issue of like, of the, the knowledge rich curriculum, right. And that people often say, you can't, you can't think critically or creatively about something about which you know nothing, right? And so teaching knowledge is therefore really important. And you can see that that's definitely true. But I'm not talking about helping people to become creative or critical thinkers as such. It's, it's something that's different. It's dispositional. It's, it's, it's like a stance towards learning stuff. That sense that, that Naomi, when she talks about her kids, when she talks about her son, he just like, he just gets on with stuff. He just has an attitude to learning that he can just learn anything that he sets his mind to. And often when she goes to those student-led conferences that they have at SMLC, like the stuff that the tutors or the learning advisors are saying, oh, let's talk about this. And he hadn't even mentioned it to his parents that he was working on this massive project because he just sort of gets on and does stuff because he's intrinsically interested in it. And this kid has never been to school. And that, I think, is something that we should not underestimate. And, and there's the, a the whole question there around, you know, is that because he's got very supportive middle-class parents that are able to nurture that? And that's definitely a part of it. And then we need to think about how this would scale across the socioeconomic spectrum and so on. But these are really important questions. And to my mind, self-regulated learning, I, I agree with you that that's the, that that's the holy grail. And, and to, to touch briefly on your PhD, if we may, to, to continue the, your educational journey, Definitely. I'll just interject for one. I'll just interject for one second to say, like, I'm just wanted to recognise that this is like also coming from like me, who's like a pretty privileged person who can, who 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 has a lot of like that cultural knowledge that that enables me to understand. Like, whilst I said I didn't understand like culture, or didn't understand history or which countries were what or that kind of stuff, there is a lot of cultural knowledge I had. I think that's enabled me like cultural references and things like that. That's enabled me to function in our society and 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 so that's something that students would a lot of students would get from high school potentially in a place like Michaela especially if they're migrants and things like that that they'd probably struggle if they didn't get it elsewhere and if we took a like a self-regulated approach I don't know if they'd get that maybe they would maybe they'd encounter it by living in the world even better than at Michaela but it's just uh it's another important thing for us to think about back to SRL Mm. yeah 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 absolutely and there's, there's a there's a whole bunch of stuff it's like it's just it seems that certainly at both, less so at SMLC, but certainly at both Michaela and XP, there's this really strong emphasis on knowledge and character, right, on, on both of those things. And, it, and I think that that's why they're so successful on, on different terms, that they are taking this broader this broader view of education. I think that like, maybe people who work in other schools would say, well, they're not the only schools to do that. I think that like, often when you when you look at school, on a school's website and they say, oh, yeah, we inculcate the values of honesty and kindness and respect and responsibility and so on. But if you look at what's happening in a day-to-day basis, like, they're not taking that stuff 
as seriously as it's taken at XP and Michaela. Like they, that's the, that's like a core part of their curriculum, and, and throwing serious resources at the development of those things. I know they talk about kindness a lot at, at Michaela and politeness and so on. And likewise, for, for for my money, it wouldn't so much be about values, but there, I think that there are a set of enabling factors that sit around the ability to regulate your own learning, and that includes knowledge. But, but, but it's broader than like just in terms of the knowledge-rich curriculum. That's knowledge of, of self as well and knowledge of, of how learning ha- happens and knowledge of metacognition and self-regulation and so on. Agency has got to be a big part of it. Kids have got to practice making choices and making bad choices and learning to live with the consequences of those. Um, motivation, they need to learn how to motivate themselves to do stuff. And I think that that's hard to do when everything is done to you because motivation – again is a bit like a muscle that i think you can you can grow and develop oracy is a huge part of this we've already talked about and and belief like self-efficacy like the the belief that you can become an effective self-regulated learner i think if we can build a curriculum around those enabling factors then the self-regulated learning part will will emerge from that so that that's my take on it anyway but so 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 your PhD is on self-regulated learning. So, and, and a PhD itself is a very self-regulated form of learning, right? Like there is no curriculum in a PhD. You're creating new knowledge. So you're doing self-regulated learning about self-regulated learning. So why is it that you've chosen to, to focus on this for your PhD? Well, yeah, like, like you were saying, I think that self-regulated learning really is the holy grail and it, it's, it's what enables people to thrive irrespective of who their teacher is, irrespective of the scenario they're in, etc. I think, like, in many ways I see life is a game and there's a couple of things in relation to that. Probably one of the most important things is deciding which game you want to play, like which of the games available you want to play. And the second is, like, once you've decided on a game you want to play, like working out how to do really well in that game. So self-regulated learning involves both of those things if, if we're talking about it properly. And for me at school, self-regulated learning and playing the game was, you know, making the choice to play the results game and at uni play the results game and, you know, use effective learning strategies and regulate my behaviour, motivate myself to be successful at that, which I, you know, thankfully was. And these days it's like about choosing which game to play, like the podcasting game or the, the teaching game or the researching game and then working out how to play that effectively. And I think, you know, we need, we need everybody to, every, people will become fulfilled if they're supported to choose the right game to play, a game that matches their strengths, and then to build upon their existing strengths to play it effectively, to have a positive impact on the world and also to, to be personally fulfilled and, you know, make a living, let's face it, that's, that's necessary as well and things like that. So, yeah, self-regulated learning sits at the heart of that. And it's, and it's also about independence. Like if you can learn independently, and you're a miner in Doncaster when Margaret Thatcher decides to close all the mines, you're in a much better position than someone who doesn't have that confidence to take on a new learning project. Or if you're a, if you're a teacher and you uh, you know you realise you don't want to do it anymore, but you feel like you you have that capability to learn th- th- new things, then you're in a much better position to to have that freedom. So ultimately, I just see self-regulated learning as about as being about independence resilience and the ticket to make the best of any situation you've got yeah okay thank you man and and so so i've got four more questions let's do these quite quick fire 
if we may. One being like, so thank you for, for outlining your educational journey. Another question that I'm really interested in is this, this idea of significant learning, like, like things that have really shaped your thinking either as an educationalist, although we've probably heard a bit about that already, or just as a person, as a human being. Is there anything that sort of sits alongside that journey that you've been on that you could point to? It could be a book you read or a person you met or a conversation you had that has really sort of been pivotal moments in your life. Yeah, sure. Let me say four things. One, Tim Ferriss's book. Two, Russ Roberts' book. Three, Eating Apple Pie. And four, Cleaning the Dishes. Okay, great. So let's, let's go into them. Tim, Tim Ferriss's book. Which book? Which book? So the four-hour work week I read when I was 23 and I was doing a um, sabbatical or a couple of weeks on a permaculture farm. And this book, like, really – I was having dinner with Peps McRae, Harry Fletcherwood and Josh Goodrich the other night, and Peps asked, what's the best book you've ever read? And my, my, this was the first thing that came to mind because it just changed my view – of like what I could achieve and it's just like really practical advice about like outsourcing work, managing distractions and interruptions and things like that. So if we look at like some of the biggest cost productivity or as Gwynne Apari would call it, impactivity for people, it's like turn your notifications off, don't start the day by checking your email, although I must say I've been falling into some bad habits around that recently, things like that. And, and also like you don't have to do everything yourself and if you can, you can multiply your impact by hiring other people to do that. So, you know, I, one of the main reasons I can, that the podcast is sustainable for me is that I hire someone to edit it because that's a hugely laborious and time-consuming task. I'm happy to do all the cognitive work because I can't outsource that cognitive work to work out what questions to do to really process the ideas, but I can, can outsource that editing and I outsource lots of things in my life means I can have a bigger impact net. So that's that's the first one. The second one is um, Russ Roberts's book, which is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And in that book, there's like one story about Joan Baez and how she responded to the death of her, of her sister Mimi's husband, I think it was Richard. So Richard and Mimi, amazing young couple. She was like a teenager. He was like in his early 20s or something like that wildly in love, having a great impact on the world. And um, Richard died in a motorcycle accident on his 21st birthday or something like that. And Joan Baez was overseas at the time doing a tour. She chose not to come back to support her sister at that time and to, to continue with her tour. And Russ just builds on this to talk about, you know, there's some things in life that you've just got to be there for, you know, and you've just got to drop everything for. And it's, it's how you respond in those kind of key moments that has the biggest impact on the quality of your relationships and the strength of your relationships with the people who are most important to you and who really show like who you are as a person. So I was, I was faced with a similar situation a couple of months ago and um, it was the fact that I'd read Russ's book and I actually sent him an email at this time and said like, you know, this thing's happened and I'm flying home at the drop of a hat. And that was without a doubt the right decision and um, that is an attitude that I will carry with me for the rest of my life in terms of being there for the people who are really important to me at the times that it really matters the most. The third thing was apple pie. My, my grandfather, he, one of the fondest kind of forms of memories for my brother, myself, and the whole family around my granddad, one of my granddads and my grandma, was the amazing food they would cook. And my granddad in his um, 
kind of declined just after my grandmother had passed. He only he he didn't he wasn't around for even a year after she passed. But um, in that intervening period, he was really on, on the decline, and he came to live with my family. And um, at the time, I was like super focused on like being healthy and like not eating sugar and stuff like that. You know, I tend to get a bit obsessed with things like that, like abstaining from alcohol or not eating sugar or meditating every day or whatever it is. And I've managed to strike the balance between strictness and flexibility better as I've grown older. But at that time, I was very kind of strict. And, you know, he cooked an apple pie and he said, do you want some apple pie? And I said, no, I'm not having sugar at the moment. And, you know, that was, the, that was the last apple pie he ever cooked and that was the way that he showed love for me and I didn't fucking eat it. And that's a disaster. That is an absolute disaster. Like I think about that all the time, honestly, because it's just it's representative of inflexibility acting as a barrier to human connection and getting wrapped up in myself and like not being attuned to to the needs of others and the way I could contribute. And and it's important for me because I am such a hyper-focused person. It is my tendency to kind of get into those kind of zones and I just need to remind myself that I should, like, eat the apple pie. Like, it's really important to eat the apple pie. Uh, it's very related to the second, the, the, the other one about flying home, the Russ Rebels book, but, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And and the first one as well, going going back to the four-hour work week, about they, these are all about sort of how to make the big decisions that life throws at us, you know, and, and or even a small a small decision in some sense, like whether to eat an apple pie or not, but understanding that there's more to that than just whether you fancy apple pie at that point in time, you know. Exactly, yeah. It's like like the, the Russ Roberts lessons about the, the really big crucial times and the apple pie lessons about like, you know, how are you going to spend the, how are you going to respond to your kid when they walk through the door or like, it's just, it's, it's that kind of stuff. And the final one. So one of my first jobs was working at the pizza store. And I just remember one day I was cleaning the dishes. It was like a chicken. Uh, Phil used to roast, roast the chickens to go on the pizzas. There's another, there's another lesson I learned there as well. One day when I was cutting up the chicken. So I was telling you about this the other day, actually, I was, when I was thinking about my gap year and leaving school, there were like two avenues I was going to go down. This is a, this is, I've added a fifth significant learning, by the way, they both happened in the pizza store. Uh, one was to take a gap year and kind of be a hippie and bum around and hitchhike all the way around Europe and blah, 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 do all that jazz. And the other one was to join the military because the military was offering this like year gap year. And I liked the idea of crawling through the bush and jumping up and down and getting fit and rigor and all that kind of stuff. You know, we're again seeing the SMLC Michaela contrast here, the moral landscape. And, uh, <laughs> and also, you know, that they'd pay you like 46 grand or something like that to do that. So, so that's a pretty good way. And then one day I was cutting the chicken up absentmindedly. And then like all of a sudden I sliced halfway through my finger and you know as a teenager who was like doing his black belt at the same time and felt pretty invincible and all this stuff was going well I thought gee stuff can change pretty quickly (laughs) and like I had this like vision of myself like in the battlefield like not that I imagined I'd wanted to be like a soldier long term but I imagined myself like in the battlefield like running along feeling like this tough soldier or something and then just like being shot and being like oh that wasn't really worth it and so that was just an interesting lesson about how quickly things can happen. Just to clarify, was it cutting your finger that made you decide not to do the military thing? It was like a definitely a contributing factor. It was like, wow, like that's not worth it because 
you just imagine yourself as like a 17, 18 year old boy, like invincible. And then it's like, no, you're not invincible. I almost lost my finger then. Like, and it was just like split second, one second, you're fine. One second, you're not. So yeah, that was really interesting. Right. I mean, that's fascinating because those two, you can see how, what a pivotal moment that is like going, going down the military path versus going and bumming around and what did you call it? Being a hippie and going around Europe with a backpack on and a, and a single slip of the knife, something that happens in a, in a nanosecond. And you can see how that's a bifurcation in terms of, you know, may, maybe it wouldn't have been that you'd have become two wildly different people, but you can sort of see that maybe you would really. I think, I think it would have had a significant impact. And, and yeah, and it was all, uh, the question I was also asking myself at the time is like, what kind of, and I think it probably more came down this than the slip of the knife, but the slip of the knife did definitely have an impact. It was like, what kind of a person do I want to become? Like, do I want to become the kind of person who's gone through a military career or do I want to become the kind of person who's like more free minded and has broadened their horizons and stuff like that. And, um, you know, for some people it would have been the first, but for me it was the second, which I, I guess correlates with my, my more leaning towards the XP ishness than the Michaela ishness whilst recognizing that they're both, both peaks. Yeah. But anyway, doing the dishes. So I was just there cleaning the dishes and Phil came and looked over my shoulder and he said, the harder you scrub, the faster it comes off. And, you know, I was like, you know what, Phil, you're right. I'm going to scrub harder. And it's just a lesson in hard work, you know, like just elbow grease, sometimes that's what's required. And, you know, that, it's true. The harder you scrub, the faster it comes off. Often often um, taking a step back and putting some detergent on it and letting it sit for a while works as well. Uh, but, you know, there is a time for hard work and when it's needed, you do need to put that effort in. Yeah, I like that a lot. I'm definitely a soaker, but that doesn't work when you're working in a pizza place. Like I used to be a dish pig. I've done many, many years operating horrible, steamy dishwashers. Okay, so so a bit of elbow grease and apply yourself. And you, you do work insanely hard, I know. And you have the, like lots of the guests who've been on your podcast are like blown away by how meticulously you plan them. When, when I've been on it, I think I've been on twice and you, I, I think it was only the second time that I came on, but you sent me like the pre-list of questions and there was like eight pages or something of like really, really detailed questions that you wanted to run through. And so you definitely, yeah, you know how to apply elbow grease when, when you need to. Well, thank you for sharing those. They're really, each of them really, really thoughtful and insightful. And I think it helps me to get a better picture of, of who you are and, and, and almost precisely why you are the person that you are and the way that you, you incline towards, towards certain, certain moral peaks. So the final three questions we'll do is a quick fire round. One of them is positives. What are we getting right currently? Because when we're talking about rethinking education, it's really easy to talk down schools, to talk down education as a whole. So what are, we, what are we getting right? What do you think is brilliant? Something that you think we need to do more of or you'd like to boost the signal of in some way? The second question is basically the opposite of that. What's the major thing that we're, that we're getting wrong? What's something that we've overseen that we're just not getting right at the moment, which you think is, a, is an imperative to do so? And the third one, if it's not too big an ask, <laughs> is how are you going to fix that problem? So positives first. So what we're getting right, I think, I think the science of reading stuff is really powerful. I know in Australia and in the States as well, people are getting on the 
the the kind of big five bandwagon and and using explicit instruction really effectively, which means that more people can read, and that is a huge factor in life outcomes. So, so what's the big five? You said the big five there. Yeah, the big five. Um, you, you're testing me now. Phonological awareness, phonics, vocabulary, comprehension, and fluency. Not necessarily in that order. The first few I got in the right order. Plus oracy, oral language. That's the kind of big six, the super six. So that's really getting a hold in Australia. I've been happy to be able to contribute to that getting a hold a little bit by boosting some people's signals. And I'm yeah excited about that. I think it's super important. I also think um, I think XP is getting crew right, and that's something that people should pay more attention to. And I I do I also think there's just a, there's a lot of good stuff going on around pedagogy like. Just people are improving it and the standards are improving. But, the, yeah, we've got a long way to go in the majority of schools, I'd say, um, there. So, yeah, there's some things that I'm pretty confident are, are going well. What's not going well are the debates, man, the debates, the sidedness. That's um, emblematic of our whole world on every topic at the moment and people just have to get over it and ask better questions and, and break down barriers and communicate and see that there's value in everything and it's just about having an open mind and extracting that value. So that's that. Also, I think primary maths education, we haven't quite got nailed and in the same way as we do the science of reading stuff. So which, which both lead into what I'm doing about it. So with the podcast and conversations like this one, I try to break down barriers around how we can take lessons from all sides of the various spectra. And I hope to be working and I am already working a little bit on the, the primary math stuff because I'm really, really excited about that. I think there's a lot to be done and um there's a lot of elbow grease that needs to be applied can you just shed a little bit more light on that what are we getting wrong in primary maths currently and what are the what are the fixes that you're working on well first of all there's a lack of expertise in that area like a lot of teachers are teaching out of area they just don't have the confidence and that's not necessarily their fault it's just the case you know and anyone who worked in a primary school or or has worked in primary teacher education will be pretty aware of that i'd say and so we need to provide those teachers with more support and we need to provide them with more structure and support so that, you know, we're not expecting them to teach themselves the sequence of conceptual development that young people need to go through to have a decent amount of number sense, sense of place value an understanding of the, the basic operations and, and all that other good stuff that's going to empower them to be effective in whichever kind of profession they head into or or in their own projects and their own self-directed learning projects. So we just need to provide more and better support for teachers. Got it. Thank you. All right. Well, all that remains, man, is to say thank you on a number of fronts. Thank you for sharing your time today and for coming on this amazing trip to see England's jewels, let's call them that, these very, very diverse places and for being able to to be so sort of even-handed in your treatment of them and seeing seeing what's working really well about them and being very transparent and open about what you find challenging as well it's been absolutely fascinating thank you for all the podcasts man i've spent i don't know how many hours listening to your podcast and for inspiring me to to start this one and for inviting me onto your podcast a couple of times and for allowing me to hijack your trip to XP and to turn it into a little road trip, that was really enjoyable. And it's been a delight to welcome you into my world a little bit in the last few weeks and to spend all this time together. So thank you in many different ways. Thank you, James. And thanks for the great 
great work you're doing to raise the voices of more diverse voices in education. And I've also had an absolute blast hanging out with you, mate. I feel like we're a good team, good travel buddies. And, um, you know, drinking a few pints was akin to eating apple pie with you, I felt. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that's going through my <laughs> mind when I'm trying to work out where, uh, yeah, those cost benefit analyses, but yeah, it's, uh, it was, it's been an absolute blast. Thanks for great questions today. It's, you know, you, you, you strike a really good balance between the nitty gritty, but also the, the big picture stuff, like those questions about significant learning. I think they really crack open another level of like intimacy and, and interest in the interview and, um, commend you for, for them. And, uh, yeah, thanks for your great work too. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.